Hey, I'm Sam. And I'm Lizzie. And we're queer people who love movies. This is Subtextual. Hi, Lizzie. Hi, Sam. Merry Christmas. It's time for a very cold movie with (laughs) Kate Blanchett in it again. It's time for long sleeves and layers. It's time to weaponize our homosexuality. (laughs) It's about damn time, honestly. Uh, So excited for this episode. This was actually chosen by our highest tier Patreon members. So if you want to tell us what to do, you want to pick our main feed episodes, you can do that at patreon.com slash pod. We've got other cool stuff there. And if you want to support us in a non-monetary way, you can just shoot us some reviews on whatever streaming platform you're listening to this right now. Um, But yeah, we're just glad that you're here for Tar. Tis the season to listen to Bach and talk mad shit to your assistant. (laughs) Time to embarrass our assistant conductors for ordering Deadstock pencils. (laughs) I can't stop thinking about Deadstock pencils. (laughs) Also, last thought before we introduce our very special guest. Mm -hmm. Have you ever considered that a a conductor is just like a fancy DJ? (gasps) Yo. I mean, think about it. Right? They choose the mix. Uh-huh. They choose the songs. They're like louder. Okay, softer. Yeah. Okay, stop. They can remix it if they want. I love that saying. analogy. I like literally woke up from a nap earlier like, <gasps> I would just DJs. <laughs> love to see Tar as, you know, the same exact scenarios, but she's just a DJ. <laughs> Plug that into one of those AI image generators and get back to me. It's what AI is for. Yes. Uh, but yes, a lovely guest. We're so honored to have in the studio, Clint Bowie. Hey. Hi. Hey, Hi. this is so surreal. I listen to you every week and feels bizarre being here, but such a pleasure and honor. We couldn't be more pumped to have you on for this episode. Can you tell the listener a little about yourself? Sure. Um, I watch movies for a living. It's actually my job. I'm a film programmer uh, here in New Orleans and I've been doing this for about 15 years. Um, I am gay, which I feel like makes sense to say on a gay podcast. So um, (laughs) legally gay. I'm married to my (laughs) lover, which um, uh, yeah, feels appropriate. I love that. Legally gay. I'm going to steal that when I get (laughs) married. Go for it. Go for it. (laughs) I'm illegally gay. Well, Um, I have a question for you, Clint. How did you like come into films? Was there was there like a moment in your life where you knew you wanted to get into film adjacent work or were you just a big movie buff as a kid? I wish I had something really interesting to say. And this probably isn't even going to make it to the podcast because it's painfully uninteresting. But I was a history major and I was I got into journalism. So I worked for newspapers for about six years and wanted to be a film critic and wanted to write about movies, but just couldn't get those jobs. And slowly started volunteering with film organizations and then got my first um, kind of paid gig in Portland, Oregon at a film center and then parlayed that into a full-time job, which is what I'm doing now. It's not so, boring at all. That isn't really boring. boring. <laughs> that isn't boring. No, not at all. And when did you move to New Orleans? About 15 years ago. Oh, yeah. So you've been yeah. here a hot minute. Yeah. Okay, yeah. cool. Settled into the swamp. Yeah, yeah. Where are you yeah. from? South Carolina. Really? Yeah, super rural South Carolina. That. Like an hour from Aiken or hour from Augusta, Georgia. Yeah. You're a real one. You're I'm a real, real Southerner. One. <laughs> and we were talking about this a little before we started recording, Clint, but when we first saw Tar, we knew that we were going to have to do it on this podcast. And for some reason, we just always had you in mind. I'm not sure why. I don't even think we had a discussion about it, Lizzie, but we were like, oh yeah, we got to wait to do Tar, you know, until Clint comes on. And it's just, <laughs> I don't know why. I wish you did know why. I'd love to know <laughs> what it says Tar about me, but I love it. I absolutely love it. Oh uh, Yeah. So how do you feel about this film? Um, What a wild ride. I mean, I, it's hard... 
to love, I think, just because there's so many like repulsive aspects to it, but it's just so fun to watch. And I remember the first time I saw it was on a plane and I remember laughing at certain moments, which I felt uncomfortable about because afterwards I was talking about it with people and talked about how funny I thought parts of it were and no one else thought it was funny. But <laughs> I mean, she's writing a book called Tar on Tar. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's hilarious. That is hilarious. There's so many aspects of it that I think are just really laugh out loud, but we can get into those. Yeah, it's incredibly self-aware that in the first scene, I was like, are we, is this a satire? Because, you know. Yeah. Uh, the world's like obsessed with her. Mm -hmm. Also, this world is somehow obsessed with a conductor. Yeah. Like, is there just like a niche part of culture society that I'm not privy to that is just <laughs> actually obsessed with what conductors do? Yeah, I don't know. Only other conductors. Yeah. 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 She's like a rock star. People give a shit about her on Twitter. I'm like, I'm sorry, no one on Twitter gives a shit about any, <laughs> any fucking conductor Ever. Yeah. Even if they were as hot as she is. Okay, maybe that's it. Maybe that's it. Kate Blanchett could be a janitor and then the world would be like, most famous janitor, Kate Blanchett. Most talented janitor, <laughs> this really hot Australian woman. Lizzie, how do you feel about this movie? I remember we walked out of the theater and we were like, can we even talk about it? Yeah, I remember being really intimidated to do it on the podcast. When I saw it, I was absolutely floored by the production of it, the editing. It really is so flawless in the story it tells, and I knew I could rewatch it again and again and find something different. And certainly watching it the second time, revisiting it at my house for the podcast was a totally different watching experience. It also has one of the most satisfying endings I yeah. think I've seen in a long, long time in film. So, like, just desserts. Ooh. So, yeah, the ending itself is, just the whole film is, is perfect. Lee, how do you feel about Tar? Yeah, I, uh, I watched it once in theaters, and then once again today, and I was like so swamped with work. I was working on something while watching the movie. And I just like, as I was watching the movie, I was like, we kind of talked about this a little bit before the podcast, Sam, where I was like, I could watch this movie three more times. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so while I was watching it, I had to keep pausing it to like finish whatever I was doing for work. And then when I got a little break, I hit play uh, just because I was fully wanted to like be in the scene that was happening. It felt like so much was being communicated. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know how to describe it. But um, yeah, I'm a huge fan of the movie. Yeah, it really doesn't waste your time with anything. You know, every scene, every piece of dialogue is so important and so layered. I, I read the script and I was already blown away by the film when we had seen it in theater. And then I read the script for it, preparing for this episode. And I was like, fuck, I'm going to need like three more research days because every single line is a reference to something real, but that's also like influential on the character or is saying something about the character. And um, yeah, so we can talk about the production a little bit. Yes. I want to really know about the director because I feel like I haven't heard too much about their work. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, how did this perfect film come from a person I haven't really heard of? <laughs> yeah. It's directed by Todd Field. This is the only film that he's directed that I've seen, um, but there's a 16-year gap between Tar oh. and his last film called uh, Little Children. Have you guys seen anything else by Todd Field? I've seen all his films, I think. I, well, wow. Little Children and then before oh, yes. that, it's just... Um, uh, in the Bedroom? In the Bedroom, right, right. Mm. Oh, nice. Which is the, the one that I've seen. Yeah. And quick little trivia fact, the In the Bedroom is uh, adapted from a short story, I want to say, 
written by someone from Lake Charles, Louisiana. No, my hometown. Lake Charles. We love the South Louisiana representation. In the bedroom is like a lobster reference, which yeah, which is not Lake Charles really. That's more because it's set in the north. It is. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. So, how did you feel about Little Children and the rest of his films? I mean, they're you know super polished in a in a similar way to this one, and um. I mean, I haven't revisited those since they came out. I remember in the bedroom really affecting me because when it came out, I think I was just kind of entering my like super fanatical watch all the like elite films stage. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so, um, you know, it's a really affecting drama and has some really powerful performances. I also really liked Little Children. So, yeah, I don't I don't know. Do you know much about his personal life? You know, he's an actor. He was in. Oh, Yeah. He, I, I did look into his personal life just a little bit. He was originally, like you're saying, an actor. He was yeah. in Eyes Wide Shut. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, really? Uh huh. Oh, interesting. And he, I have to say this, <laughs> yeah. he was in another film that we covered on this podcast. What? I don't even know how. What? Is it Dreepers Creepers 2? I will kill myself. <laughs> it is The Haunting. He's no, in The Haunting. No way. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. Wait. That's notoriously like the one we have rated the lowest of all the films we've ever covered. <laughs> yeah, I think it's literally the bottom of, the, of yeah. the list. It has like a two out of ten. <laughs> He's not in the main cast. He's like one of the two reporters or like whatever that oh. come. Isn't that so weird? The Venn diagram that allows Tar to be put next to the haunting is a weird world that we live in. Uh, I love it. But do you know why there was such a long hiatus between Little Children and this film? 16 years is a long time. I don't actually, um, but I do know that Focus features told him, make anything you want as long as it's under a specific budget. So he never pitched this. He wrote it, by the way. What? He wrote this in like 12 weeks during COVID and never had to pitch it or sell anyone on it. The only person that he really had to get was Kate because he wrote it for Kate. I'm so sorry. That was a really iconic series of facts. (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of a lot. Um, Another fun fact about him he was one of the inventors of, uh, you're laughing, Lee, so you know what this is. What's the name of it? Like, Big League Chew yes, Bubblegum? exactly. Wait, wait, what? True story. <laughs> this Bizarre. guy. at the time. But yeah. What? Yes. Does he have like bubblegum money then? Maybe. <laughs> Does Big League make a lot of money? Big bubblegum right here. <laughs> this guy is such a random enigma. I'm He's so just doing curious. side quests. He's like, uh, you know, I'll take 16 years and invent a bubblegum and then, you know, come back. and Come back and befriend Kate Blanchett. Write something for her. Yeah. So not unlike Everything Everywhere All at Once, which, you know, will be in the conversation naturally because of the year that it was released. But Todd Field initially imagined Tar as a man before writing the script and then pivoted Mm. and was like, it doesn't need to be a man. It just needs to be Kate Blanchett. Like not even like a woman. Like it needs, he's like, I've never written a script for a person in mind before. And I knew it had to be her. Wow. Fascinating. Right. And I think that if this was a film about a man it would not strike the same chords. I know some people were upset that it it did portray a woman in power as being an abuser, but it makes it so much more interesting. It's something that you don't typically get to see. That's fascinating. Thanks for sharing. I mean, a question I have, and mm-hmm. I have for pretty much every film that centers a queer person, and it's not from the mind of a queer person, mm-hmm. it makes me question, why? Why, mm-hmm. why yeah. should you gotta be gay? Like, why, yeah, right. why, are you, why are you telling the story about a gay person? Like, yeah. I, so I always, that's in the back of my mind always, but curious that it started with a guy and then moved to yeah. a woman. That's yeah. a good, yeah, as 
a gay person, I'm like, I know why I want her to be gay. Why do you want her to be gay? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And if I were to direct or like write a script, it would be a choice to make them straight. Because it's like, you know, yeah. it would be easier because we're so like gay people are so inundated with like heteronormativity that it, we can relate to a little bit closer. But Todd Field, yeah, I think it was about the power. And if it was men, like if she was straight, it would just feel really weird. Yeah. yeah. And it still feels weird, but it feels more nuanced. And also like it, I do think it makes Tar a more interesting character to be portrayed as someone who's female at birth because her gender expression toes the line of like this power masculine soft feminine like she calls her herself the father yes. of Petra you know that's such an interesting choice and I think you know if we had seen this dad like waltz up to this little German girl and yeah. like shake a finger and threaten them I would have been like oh this is really cringy and like not cool at all but for some reason with Kate Blanchett I'm like she's like getting into this child's mind she's like using her softness as a, a woman and a, a powerful woman at that to like say like no one's gonna believe you it's like even scarier somehow coming from a woman mm -hmm. and I think that it makes the film that much more like sharp and effective it also makes me think that Kate Blanchett just wanted to be loyal to the original script when it was a man and oh, just kept yeah. the I am, yeah, I am her father. Well, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <Just> fascinating. Possibly. <laughs> I no, think I'm we'll get into this, you know, as as we get into the plot. But I believe that Tar believes that they are like without gender and like yeah. that the yeah, default Tar. is a man. Like I'm not Lydia, I am Tar. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I think that her being a woman is something she can pick up when it's convenient, but she hates to be reduced to it. Anytime anyone brings it up, she quickly deflects. So I think it's, um, this might be such a weird reference, but OJ Simpson at one point at the height of his popularity said, I'm not black, I'm OJ. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that when you rise to a level of class and, and wealth. Well, and I, ego. Yeah. And, and ego, you're like, well, I'm, I'm not oppressed. I'm so rich and yeah. famous. And it's like, well, you still are a woman, you know? Yeah. So we'll see that that ego thing come up a lot. Yeah, it's always interesting what a character chooses to portray, like, their personality as. And for her, similar to when we covered The Runaways with Joan Jett, she has chosen to make her number one quality musician. Like, that is how she wants to be seen by everyone. And you're right. And if convenience allows her to get a leg up based on her gender or she doesn't really, like, center her queerness a lot in, like, how she navigates this world, surprisingly. But, like, her gender especially, she'll push that forward or back or make herself appear a little bit more softer or more masculine as it suits her. Mm -hmm. But always, she's like, I am a composer. I'm the best composer in the world. Mm -hmm. That's all she really wants to be. It transcends her gender. No, absolutely. And just a few more notes on the production because I know the movie is quite long. But if you read the script on, on the first page before the actual um, script begins, it reads, based on the script's page count, it would be reasonable to assume that the total running time for Tar will be well under two hours. <laughs> However, this will not be a reasonable film. There will be tempo changes and soundscapes that require more time than is represented on page. And of course, a great deal of music performed on screen. All of this to say, if you are mad enough to greenlight this film, <laughs> be prepared for one whose necessary length represents these practical accommodations. You better work. You better tell the people what they're getting into. That, you set the tone before you even start the script. It's it's incredible. And I think also another like thing that's masterfully done in the film, which we see, is all of the oneers, the the long takes, which I assumed was like um, a storytelling device, but apparently Todd Field just hates getting coverage. 
He hates cutting and moving the camera. He said um, he was interviewed with the, by the American Film Institute, and he said, I'm allergic to coverage. If I can get away with not covering a scene, I'd do anything. Kate would always say, you don't want me to stand up, do you? And I'd say, no, if you stand up, I'll have to cut. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it really adds to the pacing. Mm-hmm. No, and it really makes her feel like she, cause she's the center of every scene, that she's like really in control. Yeah, and you're also real time with her often. You know, mm-hmm. at least in these single scenes, these single moments you're like real time watching her work through a problem or have that cup of tea or like look through those emails you know and you you never breathe you're just there with her like yeah and you also the next cut <laughs> can appreciate how efficient she works that we don't yeah. need to cut there's no like we don't have to buffer she just gets right down to most of the tasks that she does and one more note about the production before we get into the film, but um, it's been noted that many details of Tara's biography match those of real conductor Marin Alsop. Mm. She's also a pioneering female conductor, a lesbian, mm. married to another musician, and was mentored by Leonard Bernstein. Uh, but cool. Marin Alsop was not consulted. Leonard Bernstein is someone we'll be talking a lot about in this episode as well. He's a very famous conductor, and his life is going to be the subject of the biopic starring Bradley oh, Cooper. Maestro. Maestro. Yeah. Yes. So. I think it's out now. Is it out? It's out. I saw it on the marquee of a movie theater on the way here, actually. Oh, my God. I would love to compare the two because mm, <laughs> nothing yeah. can compare to this film. So I just kind of <laughs> want to see Bradley flop a little bit, if I'm going to lie. The nose. I just can't. <laughs> you don't have to make him look exactly like him. No one knows who, what he looks like. <laughs> We're not, like, fooled. Anyway. Also sorry. queer. Mm. Oh, really? Oh. I was, oh, that's right. We watched a trailer, and I was like, does he seem gay? Yeah. Mm. He seems good. I think he was married to, to a, a woman, woman, but Carrie yeah, had open Whoa. relationships with men, I think. Oh, so we're going to have to Classic. do it for the pod. Oh, yeah. Ooh, so set your calendars, folks. We're going to be doing <laughs> Maestro. Um, but without further ado, let's get into the movie. How's the writing going? Not so well. I keep hearing something. Schopenhauer measured a man's intelligence against his sensitivity to noise. Do you ever find yourself overwhelmed by emotion? Yes. Yes, it does happen. I want her wardrobe. What does that say about us that we can watch this movie several times and still be like, she can get it, honestly? It's Tar called Morally Gray. I mean, I wouldn't say no. <laughs> I, I wouldn't. <laughs> See? It crosses, every, it crosses every single boundary. Kate Blanchett is just too fucking powerful. She's the unifier. She's the grand unifier. <laughs> yes. So getting into the film, the first scene uh, accomplishes so much. The first scene is the one with the Instagram live. It is, yeah. Yeah. She's one of those first scenes that like, it's almost like, what is that couplet before a novel you read that's supposed to set the tone or something, but everyone always forgets about? And it, I mean, when you watch something like that in a film, you're like, oh, this is a film I have to come back and watch again. Yeah. I'm yes. clearly going to forget the context. Like, mm-hmm. And it's presented with no context. Mm-hmm. And you don't even like get a sense of like what it could be or who it is. I didn't even think about it until my second watch. So Yeah, I didn't. The first watch, I was like, who gives a fuck yeah, about that? Totally. You're thrust very quickly after that into... You know, this interview scene where you're getting so much exposition that you kind of are forced to forget about For it. For sure. So, yeah, the scene that Clint is mentioning is like an Instagram live that we see of Tar asleep on a private jet. And on the second watch, I assume this was Francesca. Right. The current assistant. Yeah. But, but I think what makes it so potent is that it could be anybody. Yeah. 
And which I think is like the reality. It really could. I mean, obviously it's someone who would be in like a private jet space with her. So it's likely Francesca, but mm -hmm. it could also have been the cellist or someone else who was like moving with her. Cause you don't know exactly what time this is. It could have been the, oh, yeah. I don't know. Some films throw one of those little yeah, flashbacky things. Before, in. Yeah. Right. It's unclear, but. And they show another in, in the future when Francesca no longer works for Tar, they show another one of these broadcasts where the person is very close to Tar. Right, at the book Q&A. So right, you're like, it right. couldn't be Francesca because she, she would notice her. Exactly. Unless there's multiple people who are like <laughs> shit-dogging, like live-streaming this woman <laughs> that they hate, which is also very possible. Uh, yeah, I mean, if she's as famous as this world would, would like to make us think she is, then I guess it's possible. Some maestros are so stockable. Stockable? Stockable? I don't like hey, that. Stalkable. That's a real word. Okay, I don't believe you. <laughs> uh, and then we cut to black and get about four minutes of credits. Oh, right. The credits are at the front. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Reverse credits. Reverse <gasps> credits. We wind up, yeah, Todd Field is the last one who's mentioned. You're mm -hmm. so right. And I didn't catch that. Lizzie and I thought we had come into the end of the film. Yeah, because we missed the very opening shot. Mm -hmm. And so we walked in and we're like, fuck, wait, I thought the film was right. And we had to walk out and check and then ask them when they're like, no, it's the end. We were like, okay. Oh. And, and I was like, oh, pretension. We with love it. Pretension with a purpose. I, Such pretension. It really sets up these first few shots just are so succinct, the whole tone and the effect that this movie is supposed to have on you. Like the song that's playing throughout the credits is by the Shipibo Kanibo people, which we learned she, <gasps> yes, you know, right. worked with. And at the beginning, before they begin singing, she says, yeah, just ignore the microphone. Act like it's not there as they're showing production credits. So they're basically, they're basically saying like, just to, these are all the people that worked on it, but just forget that it's a movie. Mm -hmm. And then we roll into like a montage over, you know, the interview that Tar has with the New Yorker where you see all of her concerted effort to create a character for who she is that she tries to pass off as very spontaneous and yeah. natural. Is that the scene with all the vinyls? She's throwing the vinyls on the ground? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. I've fucking love this shot. I think that that shot in itself is like a whole movie, but it's like an overhead bird's eye of her throwing all these different vinyls at the ground of these different maestros and using her feet, like stepping on these men's faces to like <laughs> move them around and, and like order them in some way, rank them in some way that you're not sh entirely sure of until much later. And you probably would forget all about unless you rewatch the film, but she's like picking this way to present herself in a, a bio photo mm -hmm. down the line. Mm -hmm. But just the fact that she's like stepping on all these other composers' faces mm -hmm. and like kind of using directly what they've given her mm -hmm. to appear original. Yeah. Just says so much about her. I love that shot. And isn't it not even her, but another woman who actually places her foot on the yeah. final image? Right. And she places, and Tar places her foot exactly. on that woman's foot and kind of intimately like yeah. rubs it There's and you're caress. like who is this woman yeah, yeah. it's definitely not her wife no because her wife later says like i hate that fucking apartment right so it, is it francesca is right. it so long before that it could be krista like who yeah. who is it and in this montage like we get a lot of exposition about tar through her biography she's considered the most important musical figure of our time harvard educated EGOT winner, a mentee of Leonard Bernstein, specialist in indigenous music, founder of the Accordion Conducting Fellowship, which fosters opportunity for female conductors. Now she will be 
conducting Mahler's Fifth Symphony and is about to complete her autobiography, Tar on Tar. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> Clint on Clint. When is that coming out? <laughs> Lizzie on Lizzie. <laughs> Sam on Sam, I Sam feel like, is a little Sam more. Sam on Sam actually Sam works. Sam on Sam that sounds works. like a Dr. Seuss hop on Sam pop. I am. Yeah, right. Uh, she picks the photo, as Lizzie says. She picks the album cover that she's hoping to emulate. Then she gets a suit made uh. to match exactly. Then she orders the pencils. She orders a dead stock pencil that's shown in the photograph. I'm obsessed. And then she goes so far as to get the exact score that he's holding, as well as the seats from the auditorium. And yeah. she like poses in front of her mirror for what seems like hours trying to get... It exactly right. So that it can look effortless on the day. So it just looks like it just happened by chance. She is the conductor of her life, mm -hmm. of her image, mm -hmm. of all the people around her as so far as they will allow her to control them. Exactly. We'll talk a lot about power. We'll talk a lot about time and ego, of course. I think those are all like major pillars of this character's personality. But as we're learning all this stuff and we're seeing how contrived her image is, we also see a woman with red hair sitting in the back yeah. of the audience. And you see her from the back, so you, don't, you never see this person's face unobstructed. Um, it's a long shot, too. Mm -hmm. It's a big, wide one. Yeah. And you're seeing her hear the interview and people laughing at Tara's jokes. And you have this feeling like she's so still mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. she she's heard it before. Ooh, it's so creepy. I'll say the first time I watched it, that scene meant nothing to me. Mm. Like I wasn't focused on who that could be, but obviously the second watch you're, you know, mm -hmm. presuming it's either, you know, With one a, of the key players who who inhabited her, yeah. her life. Honestly, I didn't get any of the ghost stuff at all. Oh, no, The no. first watch. No, not at all. None of it. No. Someone had to point it out to me because I was like, what are you yeah. talking about ghosts? You know, it's too subtle. So after the interviewer is done reading the world's lengthiest biography, uh, he asks Tar a that question. That Francesca knows by heart. That Francesca <laughs> knows by heart. Yes, Francesca. Wrote it. Yes, sure. Tar's assistant, also the editor of Tar's Wikipedia page, knows also this Also a French woman heart. from Portrait of a Lady Iconic, on Fire. Yeah. Iconic performance. Yes. I believe her name is pronounced Noemi. Yes. Merlant and Portrait of a Lady on Fire, as Lizzie said, uh, incredible. Speaking of, can we just sidebar now that we're talking about her? Do you know what her next film is going to be? I don't know if it's her next film, but a film that she's been attached to. What? I feel like it's going to mean a lot to y'all. But it's a new biopic from the Killer Films people about Patricia Highsmith. <gasps> yes. You and just Noemi made Lizzie's day. Patricia Highsmith is such an iconic uh, cunt. The things she says, I live by. Could not agree more. Oh love, my gosh. Love. So... She's just, in, she's one of the cast and characters. She is. She plays. Uh, one of the many lovers, probably. Yeah, Patricia Highsmith yeah. had a lot of lovers. <laughs> Someone who was in a doomed relationship with <gasps> Patricia Highsmith, so. I'm going to die. <laughs> I know. I, <laughs> I know. I cannot wait. Thank you for telling that me is this. Like, just had to share that. That Thank was you. made by the universe for Lizzie yeah. specifically. If you're not sure who Patricia Highsmith is, you might have heard about her when we talked about her in our second ever episode, Carol. First ever episode? No, second ever episode, Carol. She wrote the book, The Price of Salt, that Carol was adapted from, as well as the book into the movie, um, Talented, Talented Mr. Mr. Ripley. Ripley, which I love that book. One of my favorite subtextual episodes of all time. Really? Yes. Yay. Loved it. Oh that one is juicy. That movie is something. No, I'm, I so appreciated it with talking with Lizzie through that film because I can't sit down and watch it <laughs> I, all the way through. It's I so anxiety-inducing. It's painful. Yeah. yeah, no, it's a real, it's real tense for me. Um, which makes this film seem like a cakewalk because um, although so many tense things are happening, we are under the illusion that Tar is in control. Yeah. And when she loses that control, 
that's when we start to have to worry about her. Mm-hmm. But for so much of the film, she's driving everything. And the interviewer at one point asked her a question about gender, like when classical music will not be separated or differentiated by gender. And as I said before, Tar does not want to be asked these questions. And she deflects by saying like, oh, I wouldn't know because I don't read my reviews, which we find out later is a fucking lie. And then she says, you know, but on the question of gender bias, I have nothing to complain about. And then she lists a bunch of- Gender who? Yeah, she lists a bunch of other uh, female uh, maestros that have had like a super depressing lives. And she was like, those are the ones who did the real work. I didn't do anything. I'm just chilling. She's kind of right, though. She's Mm. owning it. Mm -hmm. That's her story. She's like, I'm just stepping on all these men. I think that she will say or do anything if it's convenient to her at the moment. All of these things that she believes are core values, she later changes her Mm -hmm. opinions on. Mm -hmm. So it's it's like, she says it with the full chest, but she could be fucking lying. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, after this, when the interviewer asked her if a conductor is a human metronome, I think we really get who Tar is distilled in her answer in like a couple of lines. She says, keeping time is no small thing. Time is the thing. You cannot start without me. I start the clock. Left hand shapes, but my right hand marks time and moves it forward. The reality is from the very beginning, I know precisely what time it is and the exact moment we will arrive at our destination together. The only real discovery for me is in rehearsal, never in performance. Mm. It's tar on tar. It's tar on tar. <laughs> and so we're like, oh, what we saw leading up to this, you picking all the pencils and shit, that was your rehearsal. Yeah. This is your performance. Yeah. And you realize she's never outwardly in rehearsal as she places it. Like she's only has that experience with herself alone. Definitely. And she spends a lot of time alone. Um, that is such a beautiful monologue. I feel like probably so many... Uh, acting students are going to be tempted to tackle that monologue mm. for their acting classes, just like how many singers are tempted to bring Adele to a karaoke bar. <laughs> Am I the hubris? The hubris. <laughs> what I tell you, I wouldn't attempt it. <laughs> no, no, leave it to the professionals. Yeah, but she's big on control, time, obviously, and also the illusion of all of this. Just, it's just I'm just so good that it just happens, baby. So natural. I didn't have to work for any of this, even though, like, very clearly there's a moment towards the end of the film. Oh, when she's talking with her wife at some point, her wife insinuates, like, well, remember when you first got to Berlin and you were asking me, like, how's what's the best way to angle yourself in this community so that you can get a leg up? So it's like she has put in so much work and is choosing to paint her story as like, oh, it just happened to me, mm-hmm. you know, but obviously she works her ass off because she's super knowledgeable. Yeah. She studies. She like memorizes. She has such a backlog of information. And it's so interesting when someone else brings up something she's not an expert in, she deviates, pivots, mm. quickly oh. to flex. Oh, like the classroom scene, I guess, is one. The classroom scene when she's having lunch with Olga. And oh, right. And Olga. yeah, we'll, we'll get to we'll that get scene. To it, we'll get to it. Olga, poor Olga. Olga. Uh, the little baldelaire. I love her. Outside after the interview, Tar is flirting with a beautiful woman. And the script reads, eyes delighting on well-kept details of the young woman's figure, makeup, hair, nails, diamond ring, shoes, and red handbag. Eyes mm. delighting. Eyes delighting. Those eyes are delighting. <laughs> and we also see Francesca like- Her in, eyes are not delighting. <laughs> not delighting. <laughs> not. She's literally like giving like the stank like- <laughs> Totally. Mm-hmm. She's like waiting, ready for this conversation to wrap up. And in the script it reads, Tar tries to ignore her. <laughs> <laughs> I need to read this script. It's very good. It's just as satisfying as the movie. 
honestly. I, I read an interview with um, Olga. I can't remember oh, her surfy name. Surfy Carr. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And she talked about how beautifully written, not even just the script, but some of the notes surrounding it were. And she pinpointed one scene in particular where uh, members of the orchestra raised their bows mm-hmm. and how it was um, uh, said something about how it was a tree in a forest that then grew to be multiple trees or something, just like the, the turn of phrase they used in yeah. just the stage directions and had nothing to do with the script, but just how beautiful it was and what a great writer Todd was. So yeah. Evocative. So yeah. it is such a satisfying script to read. I really would recommend it. And you can get it online. You can just type in really? Tar script. Yeah. Oh, wow. And it comes up. Eyes delighting. Delighting. And then Tar proceeds to basically like edge this woman in conversation. Like, they both look like they're about to like have an orgasm. Dude. Well, she takes her handbag or is given her handbag. Yeah. At one point it says, um, excuse me, at one point Tara says, sleep was impossible. And the the fan goes, it's like my freshman year at Smith. <laughs> Bitch, Code. if you were like telling stories about your freshman year at Smith, it's like I had a friend who was like, okay, I have figured out, she's like very much in the dating scene. She's like, I figured out a way to like, ascertain if someone is like age appropriate or not for me he's like in her mid-20s she's like all i do is ask them where they were on 9-11 wow. and if they don't have a clear answer that isn't like i think i was at nursery school and she's like it's a go <laughs> yeah at the line it's like my freshman year at smith in the script it reads noted by tar <laughs> do we take a shot every time there's like obvious subtext like that or <laughs> oh my god we'd be on the fucking floor um yeah and then the handbag thing um because we see the handbag later yeah. and we're left to infer that she's slept with this woman did the woman give her it's the a handbag? fucking birkin by the way it's, it's not something expensive. you can go to the store and buy do you guys know all the like lore on birkins i do you have to be invited what and then they choose one for you you can't pick wait okay so she has that woman's handbag it must be her oh it's in the scene when she comes home and sharon's i think sharon even points it out mm-hmm. and she said it was a gift from Elliot. A guy, I can't remember. Yeah, one of Elliot, yeah. the guy that we yeah, see her right. having lunch with. She one hundred percent slept with that girl. Yeah. Of course, and got the bag. Did she steal the bag? It's a fucking Birkin. You don't just like. What would compel you to give your bag to somebody? The younger woman is obsessed with Tar. If Tar was like, oh, one more comment about the handbag, she'd be like, here, <laughs> have it. I don't need it. I don't need this fucking Birkin that I was on a wait list for for months. Wow, that's so funny. I wonder. So is it written in the script Birkin? No, it just says red handbag. Because it's it would answer the question, like, that is her handbag. Because mm-hmm. it's probably just the one if you are invited to buy it. I didn't you know? go back and rewind to make sure it was the exact same handbag, but it was red. And I it think was, there's the implication. The, it looks yeah. just like Same it. color, same yeah, size, yeah. same styles. Like They said enough. It's just everything is so masterfully done. It's actually so devastatingly infuriating going back and researching this movie. Because every frame, there's something in the background that means something so insanely niche like at one point she opens her closet and there's like a bunch of boxes that says like little toys and sundries and whatever and it's a reference to Joan Didion who Todd Field wrote a book with and as an homage to her he put some of he had like Joan Didion wrote some lines about like in in the girl's room she had these boxes he puts all of those boxes written this exact same way in her closet we love that. Wow. It's annoying for me as a person who wants to research this fucking That's too much. <laughs> that scene also when she lies about the handbag, mm-hmm. I mean, is coupled with 
another lie immediately after with about the pills. Mm-hmm. Isn't that isn't <gasps> that the right. same scene? Yeah. And you just see her lying constantly. Oh, and I found that's this in when the drawer. like oh yeah. my gosh, you start to realize what a true It's so easy like, for her too, the yeah. effortlessness. Yeah, totally. So after this interaction with the fan, she has lunch with Elliot Kaplan, who is the co-founder of the accordion fellowship that Tar runs. We get some backstory on Krista a little bit as she was like one of the conductors that they had trouble placing because she had issues. Mm-hmm. And we also see very clearly that Tar does not respect this Kaplan guy. I have more to say about that as we go on to see her relationships and, and why she feels obliged and almost resentful to everyone she has a close relationship to. And I think it's because she has to imply that they have any power in it. So for Elliot Kaplan, she has to be like, oh, you're such a good conductor, you know, because he bankrolls her whole fellowship. But she doesn't believe that. And she almost looks like annoyed to have to sit there and go through that. Oh, for sure. So this lunch is pretty chill, but they do roast Tara's assistant conductor, Sebastian, on his dead stock pencils. Which is so funny because this bitch buys dead stock pencils. Get out of my life. But that's the thing. You can only call out something in someone else if you've experienced it. If you're insecure about it. It's so true. Uh It's so true. And then we get probably one of the tensest scenes in the film, which is the Juilliard scene, where she, like, guests teaches or leads a conducting class. And this is the longest running scene in the whole film, mm. as well as a one No way. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that. I didn't realize it on the first watch or even the second watch. It was pointed out to me in my notes. And then I watched an interview uh, with Todd Field. And he said that the decision was made when scouting locations that he was told that there would have to be a like 36 camera setups. And he was like, no. <laughs> How about one? Yeah, we're doing it in one, um, which took apparently an insane amount of rehearsal. And he said, it can't be impressive. If the audience knows it's a one or two early, we'll have not done our job. Well, they hit it really well because they change up the setup. Like they basically hit the 36 setups. They go on the stage, yeah, they do sure. a medium. She goes like into the audience. She goes wide. Like we look at every corner of this room. Mm-hmm. And the camera doesn't move often. It stays and holds for the first few yeah. minutes. So you think it's like stationary. It's so smooth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Lee, you're an audio mixer. How do they do audio, like travel the audio mixer around in a room like that? I guess it would be a lot of wireless, like a lot of wireless mics. And then you could have a boom operator just like, you know, tailing, you, the, tailing the camera, the was it a steady cam or what is? Yeah, I'm I mean, assuming so because yeah. the way they were going upstairs it's hard and to on make the... a lot of track for that. Sorry, to right? Yeah, that. no. But yeah, no. There's also another thing I wanted to mention on that is like later in the film, that scene gets chopped up in like mm-hmm. a YouTube, group, oh right, like a, like a little mashup or whatever. But it's funny because like the scene is actually in <laughs> one, like you know, that's like the reality, but yeah. it's like kind of chopped. That's funny. And shot from so many different angles. Like how many kids were on their phone? Yeah. In this crazy. There's like eight kids in the room. Like they had a low budget for extras, I guess. Like how were all those kids just secretly filming? They're all working on the same project. Like they're compiling all their media together. Well, if on this rewatch, it was so obvious. There's only one person filming the entire time and it's Francesca. She stood way at the back and she's the only one stood. And she has her phone up to her You're chest. You're kidding. Like mm-hmm. oh, she did it. Mm-hmm. She did that shitty edit in CapCut. I know. And at that point, I'm like, how does not How does Tar not see her? Because like you're saying, there's eight students in this room. She thinks she owns Francesca. She lets Francesca have access. And we're left to assume also that 
Um, at least the first time we see the Instagram live story is also Francesca. So she has such an insane amount of access to Tar and so much trust at this point. Like she mm-hmm. thinks, oh, well, she's trying to, you know, get a spot as a uh, conductor too. And I'm the only one that can grant her that. So I own her ass. Basically. I think she's so good in this. So she and, the, and Sharon, I think they're both incredible, like such incredible performances. I wanted more of both of them. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean... It's a fucking hard job to stand opposite Kate Blanchett, oh. especially in this role. And they did they did fantastic. Yeah. In the scene, Tar is listening to a piece conducted by a student named Max, a piece that she's not familiar with. She remarks like, oh, new music, isn't it fun? <laughs> and so I think she realizes, well, I can't exert my power over this piece. So she turns her attention to Max mm-hmm. and just starts going in on him. Mm-hmm. The first thing that she notices that he might be sensitive of, she just fucking hones in on that. And he's already so clearly nervous because she's like an EGOT, you know, winning yeah. conductor. So He's like a sophomore at Juilliard. <laughs> like, poor fucking kid. But also, like, know your shit. I was like, I would give you a C-. minus. He's like, uh, I guess I like the piece because I heard the composer say this about it. And I'm like, do you not have any opinions of yourself? Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm being led by what Tar tears into him for. Yeah. But, um... I'm also kind of like, you're in Juilliard and you're taking a class with Lydia Tarr? Like, come prepared. Yeah, I feel like you would know, right? Make something up. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, that's my academic insecurity coming out on camera. Yeah, Tarr asks Max what they think of Bach, and Max responds that as a BIPOC pangender person, Bach's misogynistic life makes it impossible for me to enjoy his music. And Tar says, what exactly do you mean by that? And he says, well, didn't he sire like 20 kids? And Tar says, that's documented along with a considerable amount of music. <laughs> but I'm unclear what his prodigious skills in the marital bed would have to do with B minor. Oof. Tar on Tar. Tar on Tar. She's <laughs> spitting absolute bars. And the first time watching this, you're like, yeah, no, I mean, I agree. Like, maybe he should. It's just kind of a conflicting argument. I can see both of their point of view. But at this point, we really trust Tar. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. But on the rewatch, we're like, oh, oh, of course you would have the opinion that who cares about what they do yes. in their marriage because they're so great. It's a very convenient point of view for her to have. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she grills this poor kid about it. I mean, and that's the thing, too. Like, these are college students, and, like, they're— talking in a way about things that she puts absolutely no importance into. So she is lost in the conversation. And like you say, like pivots with that and just tries to bring Max down in the eyes of the class and and in her eyes too. She's like, oh, well, you don't know what you're talking about. Have you considered this? And she is such a good creator of an argument. Like her points really are. Very good. You have to be like a debate major to stand up to Lydia Tarr. Yeah, she says, and then she drops the fact that she's a lesbian. She says, like, I'm a, what about U-haul Beethoven? Lesbian. I'm a U-Haul, U-Haul lesbian. lesbian. And no one laughs. I'm like, come on, guys. <laughs> well, Lizzie funny. turned to me while we were watching it and she was like, do you think some people didn't know? Like, do you think this is for the audience? <laughs> yeah, I was like, that's a little piece of exposition for the people in the audience who are like, <laughs> you know, speaking of Portrait of a Lady on Fire, this just reminds me, I was like sitting in the theater with you watching that at like a big commercial theater because it was the only place I was playing it. And I remember it's like a good five minutes before there's dialogue in the film, but the film is in French because it's a French film. And I just remember the couple in front of us, like an older couple, was like, oh, subtitles. (laughs) (laughs) And they said, like, French? French? And then they said, oh, subtitles. And then, like, during one of the first sex scenes, I remember just kind of being like, 
what do they think about this? And they were squirming. And I was like, y'all came to the wrong movie. <laughs> Subtitles. It's so funny. Yeah. I don't understand how people go in knowing nothing about a film. I try to avoid spoilers and I still know that the film is in French. <laughs> Jesus. Have you seen a lesbian? Have you seen a lesbian? <laughs> They're all trying to look like Kate Blanchett right now. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And, um, you know, she tries to get Max over on Beethoven and Bach and Max says, nowadays, white male cis composers are just not my thing. She says, don't be so eager to be offended. The narcissism of small differences leads to the most boring conformity, which I can agree with. I mean, it's kind of like that thing. If the entire basis of the art you are learning is on a foundation of colonist creators, like in order to break free from that and create something new, you kind of need to know the rules to break them. At the very least, kid, like know who Bach is so that you can take the good and the bad and be able to, which I do understand his point too as well. However, it's like they've been given so much space in the art form. Like it's time for new creators, like the one he's trying to exhibit with his piece. Mm -hmm. But maybe there's like a balance there. Like if you can like point out maybe that there's something better coming now from creators who are not an old white dude from the 18th century, then you'll have a stronger like path moving forward for the art itself. So... Yeah. And maybe he'll figure that out. You know, I mean, he's like 20, so. That's a good point. He doesn't have a, well, instead of Bach, I like, you know, right. it's just like, I'm saying no to Bach. And mm-hmm. it's like, well, I've had to see Citizen Kane about 20 fucking times. And guess right. what? I don't fucking like it. But I understand that they invented shots in that film that we still use today. Like, I understand the historical importance of the film. Yeah. And also that Orson Welles was kind of an asshole. Like, I can hold both things and like pull from it what I need, you know? Yeah. So I'm going to show you the end of this scene now now someday max when you go out into the world and you guest conduct for a major or minor orchestra you may notice that the players have more than light bulbs and music on their stands they will also have been handed rating sheets the purpose of which is to rate you now what kind of criteria would you hope that they would use to do this your score reading and stick technique or something else Where are you going? You're a fucking bitch. Can you uh, describe that scene I just showed you, Lizzie? Um, yes, this is the in, the tail end of Professor Tarr's absolute tirade on this poor young student who says, enough is enough. You're a fucking bitch. <laughs> um, she makes some really harsh points. But like I said, you got to be like debate team captain to stand up to Lydia Tarr. But this is just another one of the many examples where she uses her power over those who can't really say anything back to her. So in his defense, it's a really brave thing to do, even if it's a little unprofessional, to be like, you're a fucking bitch. Bye, I'm out of here. You know, he literally walks out. And Max's argument in this debate, if that's what we want to call it, is half-baked. I think he's aware of that. But as someone who describes himself as like, BIPOC pangender and wants to be very, appear as inclusive of different voices. He does call this incredibly talented woman who's very well decorated, she has egots and yeah. all this shit. He does reduce her to a bitch. True. At the end. Oh, so right. So it's like, okay, now that you're being challenged in your mindset, now this woman is a bitch. Well, maybe it's a kind of a point that, like, at Juilliard, they're probably so tiptoeing around the new ways of thinking that they would never think to outwardly question like she is 
to a student. You know, like maybe it would be like the way more dangerous kind of subversive stuff that's just like ingrained in the material they're learning that doesn't place different sorts of people on equal footing. But she is like saying it doesn't fucking matter who you are. Like, I don't care about your belief. And he's probably not used to being so physically and verbally confronted like that. So you see him. But you're so right. It's such an interesting point that he in turn reduces her to, of course, the one slur you would call a woman in power who's questioning you. And that's a bitch. Mm -hmm. She was so being a bitch. She was being a bitch. uh, Yes. (laughs) But I'm allowed to say that. And he isn't. <laughs> yeah. That scene is so good. So good. And I never caught that it was a one one or so. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm stupid. Maybe so I was just, impressive. Yeah, she's just so commanding that you don't even notice the cameras moving because you're just on her. Yeah. So good. Um, so at Tar's Hotel, we see the redhead outside, watch Francesca come in. And then um, in the hotel suite, Francesca tries to make dinner plans with Tara, who like quickly shoes her off because we know that she's going to go and fuck the fan that she had met in the lobby. For sure. Is this the scene too when Francesca asks if she wants her to come back later? Yeah. <laughs> she's Notes. like, that won't be necessary. Ooh, frigid. I love it. Francesca is such a great actor. Like Naomi is incredible as well as the the character is just... It's kind of what I was trying to say before. I'm not sure if I made that point very clear, but Tar seems to resent her personal relationships because she has to feign that the other party has any power whatsoever. and matters. And she only really ever feels comfortable. We only ever see her as herself when she's with someone who she doesn't have to pretend Mm -hmm. has power with her assistant, with her child, with Olga. You know, like we see her actually living in the moment because she's not like, placating somebody else. Um, Before Francesca leaves, though, she drops off a package for Tar, which is the book that we Mm. later see. Ooh, that book, another one of the research rabbit holes I had to fall down. But in the car on the way to the airport, Tar asked Francesca her thoughts on the New Yorker interview. And Francesca says that she has a note on how Tar framed the marriage of Mahler and his wife Alma. Francesca says Alma was a composer too, but Mahler insisted she stop writing music. He said there was only room for one asshole in the house. And then Tar gives us this great statement, which is also, I feel like, so true to who she actually is as a character. Tar says, but she agreed to those roles. No one made that decision for her. She really doesn't understand power dynamics and the fact that, like, the person in power can probably influence in so many different ways the person who has less power than them in that moment. I th- yeah, she's like, well, you agreed to be my assistant. And that means right. I never have to promote you if mm. I don't feel like it. Exactly. You know? So the, in this case, the rules are very much uh, favorable to Tar. So this is the stance she's going to take now, you know, that uh, you, agree to, you agree to letting me abuse my power. So like, <laughs> so I don't see what the problem is. is. As she has her hand on her shoulder. <laughs> yes. Her limited touch, like with Francesca, is such a like, she gives it to her so, what's the word? She like doles it out. Exactly. Like it's... um. She's so withholding with it, and she drops it very evidently throughout their interactions. She even has to ask for it at a certain part coming up. Yeah. Yeah. Painful. Um, Francesca tells Tara that she's received another email from Krista, and she says this one seems especially desperate. And Tara says, hope dies last. Oh, didn't she say it in German? Mm -hmm, Kill me. Even spookier. Literally kill me. (laughs) She's such a frigid bitch. I love it. I love it. 
Uh, in the plain bathroom, we see her open the package and we see that it's a copy of Vita Sackville West's challenge. Sure. All of those words mean a lot to me. <laughs> you all know. I, sh- I should just yeah, skip over course. this part. I don't want yeah. you guys to know what that means. <laughs> so obvious. <laughs> <laughs> um, can I just show you what might be the best and most pretentious conversation I had the delight of viewing? Yes. Uh, collections. Uh, what, what is, I didn't understand the book. That, that that what that meant is it, then is that a maze that they she wrote in the introduction? What what is that? Uh, it's a it's a book by Vita Sackville West and Vita Sackville West. Do you know anything about her, Bradley? She came from a sort of high flown British family. Um, had a very very complicated um, uh, relationship, to say the least, with her husband. Um, and if you've seen or read Virginia Woolf's Orlando, that's sort of based on Vita Sackville West. They were lovers. And is that a maze or is that some sort of emblem? Uh, a kenny pattern. A kenny pattern is a um, a form of expression. Um, hello, Bradley. Wow. Did you even watch the film? Yes, Lizzie, can you please describe that little conversation clip? It was like a Zoom, recorded Zoom meeting between Bradley Coop Coop doing his best to mediate Todd Field, the actor who plays Tar's wife, and Kate Blanchett and... This book, is it a maze? Is the book called or an, emblem. Collect- or an emblem? He calls the book Collections. It's not called that. It's called <laughs> Challenges. And then okay. fucking Todd Field in a very Juilliard scene type of way, kind of very politely, dresses him down a little bit. And he's like, uh, have you heard of uh, a book, Bradley? Uh, if you've read of this person's work, oh, have you, Bradley? Uh, Virginia Woolf, do you even know what that is, Bradley? <laughs> oh, my God. These people just like... They take off their little silk glove and just, like, smack each other with it. <laughs> um, I'm such a troll. I Like, whenever I see that little emblem that he – I thought it was, like, that S that we would write Stop. in the 2000s. You know no, what I'm talking about? It's, yes. like, the three lines, the three lines, and you connect them to make a big – 20 yeah it was an s we did it in the 1990s too just. okay sorry yes to bridge the gap the 1990s as well like that's what i was like just a bunch of those s s what could it mean i fucking love that that's what you thought <laughs> because too. when when tar opens the package it's a first edition of the book with vita sackville west's signature oh i missed that in it oh I. so totally the writer signed that. it and that's crossed off and with like a pen that wrote the same pen that wrote all of the patterns. So it's funny to think that they opened up this like probably $50,000 yeah. book. <laughs> yeah. out the signature and wrote a bunch of S's. <laughs> and shoved it into the little <laughs> slot of a trash can, which is just, that is another laugh out loud scene for me. Her shoving it into that little slot. Yeah, like not just getting it amazing. right away either. <laughs> so fucking uh, funny. Like, oh. People just don't, like, text each other, like, passive-aggressive text messages in this world. They send each other first edition books (laughs) with little inscribbles. I think it's so funny, one, that Bradley Cooper asked this question incorrectly, but two, Todd Field almost looks like a exhausted to having to be answering this no one would fucking know no one no one would infer any of the things you just said. Maybe, like, 0.01% of the people watching this film. Yeah, maybe. Maybe even fewer than that. I... <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Tar throws away the book and then at, you see her at her seat like with the pattern again on a piece of paper and then she's anagramming Krista Taylor into the word, the words at risk. Ooh. Ooh. Sure. We love anagrams. She's like, I am Lord Voldemort. 
Sorry. Is that a spoiler? Well, like, Lauren Voldemort really was like, huh, I really need a persona. Let me take my time. You know what I should do? It'd be silly. Like, what if I give him a name that, like, means something else? They'll never catch on. Like a word game. He's literally, like, the king of death. And he's, like, doing anagrams for his name. Ooh. Je suis Lord Voldemort. No, that doesn't help me That's make a name. <laughs> Yo soy Yo soy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Um, at Tar's home in Berlin, we found... Tar finds her wife, Sharon, who's basically mid-panic attack because she can't find her heart medication. And like Clint was saying, she's just so easily lies to her. Like, she lies like five lies in a row to her wife, Sharon. And we learn that Tar is, like, stealing her wife's heart medication. It's a metropyrol, which is a beta blocker that slows your heart rate. Uh, is it like an anxiety connected to anxiety? From what I can tell, it's like people don't take it recreationally. It just really like just slows your heart rate and there's a lot of references to beats per minute mm -hmm. in this yeah. film it's controlling and, time and mm -hmm. more in the mm. script there's a lot about beats per minute too and then right after the scene she goes let's slow it down to 60 beats per minute which is like her happy place 60 beats actually 63 oh yeah and her wife's like it's actually 64 beats oh. 64 yeah oh, 64 69 <laughs> um, y'all better send me first edition books if you're going to be coming for me like that <laughs> Sharon is such a great character and deserves nothing that happens to her. But she is smart. She's she smart. figures out Tar so quick. But I don't know why she waits so long to do something about it. Well, she's the the powerhouse behind the powerhouse. You know, I feel like she ultimately is probably the one who orchestrated all the machinations behind getting her into getting Tar into that place. Like she kind of admits that, and she's also the concert master and like the first violin she's such a powerful person you can't like like she's already someone who's super capable of all this guile and pretense and you know i i don't know she's just there's something about their relationship that's so fascinating to me mm -hmm. it's the rules of the game like it is. She's not stupid. She not Tar at all. isn't pulling anything over on her and she knows that. She knows Tar is lying to her about the bag and she asks Tar like I called you last night and you didn't answer. You never sleep that deep and Tar like bats her away and I think that's the most pressure she's going to put on Tar because like she's agreed to these rules so to speak. Yeah, on top of that, she's also it seems the primary caregiver for their daughter. So she's got a lot on her plate. And accomplishes so much and you're so right Clint the, the amount of like creative influence she seems to have over Tar is like and like is that her foot on the vinyl totally. in the beginning mm -hmm. you know like crafting her image I don't think so but it could be so how much of like how many people truly has Tar stepped on in order to get where she is oh uh, yeah I would watch every single prequel on Tar like this is the this is her breaking point but I would love to see everything that led to this oh my god origin story Origin story. What happens in that creepy old house she grew up on? And what is that, Long Island? Or? Oh, Staten Island. Staten yeah. Island. Yeah, there was so much in that house that I was like. Ugh. An old TV that seemed way too old for, for Tar to be watching. But <laughs> I want to see, I want to see Francesca's prequel. And like, I want to see part two featuring, centering Francesca I and wanna, Sharon. Like I, Oh, yeah. Uh, you mentioned her their daughter Petra and this is the scene that follows I can't drop in here because it's in German and unless you speak German uh, might not really hit all the same beats for you but Petra points out her school bully mm. and Tar marches <laughs> right over there and fucking ooh reads this tiny little girl for filth queen 
Honestly. King. King. Yes. I'm Petra's father. Yes. So she 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 walks up to this little girl. She gets down to her level and says, I'm Petra's father. She told me a lot about you. I know what you're doing. And if you do it again, you know what I'll do. I'll get you. If you tell any adults what I just said, they won't believe you because I'm a grown up. But you need to believe me. I will get you. Remember. Yeah. God watches us all. <laughs> what? Oh, shivered. Ugh. Put the fear of God into that little bully. Okay, you know how some people say you've mastered a language when you can be funny in it? <laughs> you've mastered a language when you could read a five-year-old to Bill. <laughs> Amen, honestly. And again, like going back to the choice to gender swap this character, this would have been really cringy. Oh, for sure. From a man and yeah. not like a, I don't know why, like some part of me was like, yeah. And that's the thing. The thing about Tar is like yet another abuse of power. But she's not just an all bad character mm-hmm. because in her core, like, she is a very protective father figure, mother figure, guardian figure to Petra. And she can get to the bottom of this issue when Sharon obviously had some trouble figuring out what was going on with Petra. But within, like, one morning, <laughs> Tara's got it fucking figured out. So I think it's interesting that this character who can treat so many people so badly also has so much love for this girl. I love her, Tar. <laughs> Sam, okay, I don't know if you've like picked this up over the years or over the episodes listening, Clint, but Sam loves mean girls. I do. I love it when people are a little bit mean. Ooh, I love a mean something. girl too. It does something for because like women are so conditioned to say like excuse me and I'm mm-hmm. I'm sorry that I'm it takes sorry. so much of your life unlearning that to just feel confident to be like I deserve to be here and I deserve to be heard. And so mean women, I'm like, oh, you lapped me like fucking years ago because you got to that point. And then you're like, on top of that, I'm going to be mean. <laughs> like that is impressive. That actually makes a lot of sense. Thanks for painting it like that. It's the courage to be mean and dislike, yeah. which women mm-hmm. are not afforded. So I think it's really honorable, honestly. Um, especially when you're fucking telling off a bully. That's great. Yeah. Before the cellist auditions, Tar's in the bathroom washing up when Olga walks in. I've referenced her as a Violet Baudelaire because that's, she looks like Emily Browning from, okay, this is for somebody, nobody in this room. Uh, okay, Todd. <laughs> um, but in the script, it's written that she walks in, her heel strikes at 60 beats per minute. No You're way. kidding. I'm not. I wish I was. Wow. I wish I was kidding. I should start making up pretentious things in the script to see if it's even discernible. But it's written as 60 beats per minute. What God. The, her perfect beat. Yeah. The heels click. click, And so she does kind of look gay. Tar like sees her in this leather jacket and then mm. looks under and sees the shoes and clocks the shoes. She is Russian. She's Russian. Russian. So there might be a culture, you yeah. know, like in the way that they dress. That she appears gay. A little more gay, yeah. Yeah. And then Tar clocks the sound of her feet and then in turn gives her a better score on her blind audition. Uh, But she kind of is the best too. Like the thing is like this cellist is amazing. mm -hmm. So you're kind of like, okay, well. Yeah. We have to remember that she will be playing in Tar's symphony. So Tar wouldn't let her through if she was actually bad. It right. would compromise it would Tar's interests. Yeah. So there is just like a little bit of wiggle room that 
you know, gets her the spot, even though, as Lizzie was saying, she might have earned it of her own accord anyhow. The next scene, we get Tar at her apartment. So she has a home where she stays with Sharon and Petra, but then she has an apartment where she works. And as she's preparing the score that she's writing, we see Krista, Krista's ghost in the background. Never saw that until this last watch. Me either. Me either. And it's so obvious. It's like very clearly a redheaded woman lurking in the background. Mm Mm-hmm. That's funny. Like, I wonder if you didn't tell me something was a horror film, like how long it would take me to figure out. You know I, what I mean? It would have, I would have actually been so embarrassed to rewatch it for this podcast and not have known about the ghost because I never picked up on it. Thanks, Letterboxd. Honestly, it was like a Letterboxd review that it was like, was. uh-huh, that ghost in the background. I, I, know, like, I Googled like Tar I like, ghost. What? And then it came up. Okay. I love this because you were kind of pointing out some. Um, audio cues Mm -hmm. to Krista's ghost in the film. Yeah, it's written as a two-tone mocking sound that comes up in different formats. Like sometimes it sounds like a doorbell in that apartment. It's like, ding, ding. Yeah. And then she hears a siren later and it's like, wee-woo, wee-woo. And it it takes a lot of like shapes and forms. But it's interesting, both that two-tone and Krista's ghost appear in this one scene. And then, you know, the next following days, she's informed that Krista has committed suicide. And Krista's ghost was never present before the scene. So like Lizzie and I were talking, like, is, is this the moment she died and became like an entity? Love it. That's what I was thinking. Like she has chosen in the afterlife to haunt Tar. Of course she would. Um, also, there is um, in this same sequence, there's a moment where Lydia goes to the piano where we in an earlier shot saw the apparition mm-hmm. and she kind of gets like a chill, mm-hmm. like a cold chill passes mm-hmm. over her, mm-hmm. which Never even considered. I was like, oh, it's chilly in Berlin. Like the first time I watched it. But this time I was like, she's, they're there together. She's like lurking over her. So much scarier that way. So much scarier. So after we are introduced to that like two-tone sound in the next scene, Tara's on a run and she hears a woman screaming in the forest and the ambulance sound. And Lizzie, I have something to tell you that I think you're going to hate. What? What? What could it possibly be? I didn't believe it, but I've heard whis- I heard whisperings about it on Reddit that they stole that scream from the Blair Witch Project. <gasps> Is it true? Yes. <gasps> Is it really? Nobody on the production has confirmed it. People are like, oh, you're just making accusations, but I have this to show you. <gasps> so I'm showing Lizzie and Clint a clip of Tar and a clip from the Blair Witch Project played simultaneously. Who noticed this? Who did this? Who? <laughs> what journalist? <laughs> who? Who noticed that? Who Clint? noticed this? Wait, is that illegal? Um, no, probably not. Does Heather Donahue, who plays the screamer in Blair Witch Project, get royalties? She wasn't in any of the credits. It did. She her name didn't appear anywhere. That's the same scream. Yeah, but a lot of people online were pointing it out. Like a lot of people noticed this because I think that scream at the end of the Blair Witch Project, which we won't spoil here for you, is like iconic. Yeah, and it's the same. Like it's indisputable. The, that's the it's same, same fucking audio. Mm-hmm. And it's so bone chilling. It's not like you know. Sometimes, honestly, you're out in the world and you hear someone screaming nearby, and you're kind of like should I do something about that? And then you look over and it's just like two kids like screaming at each other and you're like, oh, phew. This scream is absolutely like terror. This is like I am about to be murdered scream. And what I like to think, if this is the scream from Blair Witch Project, why would they do that? And 
it kind of makes me think that Todd Field is trying to say that this is of her own imagination mm. because like she a has, memory. Because it's it a is memory. so iconic. Yeah, because it could it's so be iconic. Stuck in her head somehow. When she she's like imagining a scream that's not original and in, in present in the moment. Mm-hmm. So I'm just imagining her in that Staten Island bedroom watching yeah. the Blair Witch Project. <laughs> On her little VHS <laughs> Exactly. TV. Before she was cool and important and everything. And when when her body is like conjuring up an, a scream, it's that scream. Yeah. Wow. I'm, yeah, that makes sense. I love that. I love that read. But I'll, when I find Todd Field, that mother, I have questions for him, so I will be confirming that. <laughs> Track him down. <laughs> <laughs> Why Mr. Did you Field, your days are numbered. Okay, so we see Tar actually begin rehearsing Mahler's Fifth. Um, she's really in her element. The script reads, this is where we see the why and how of who she is, the art of the particular, the discipline, the only real reason that people put up with her. Because <laughs> she's fucking good at what she does. This is, yeah, this is where she's her, you know, like the rehearsal, as she mentions in the first conversation with that interview. And she's really charming and she gives good direction. I don't know if if all composers direct like this, but she directs like she's directing actors. She gives them like visual motivations or emotional motivations rather than being like louder, softer, more G, less G, whatever. You know, she's not directing them on the music. She's directing them on the feeling. And I, I was pretty entranced by that. I was like, I can see how she's gotten to this position there's also though something that I don't know if it's in this scene or some another one, but where she, where there's almost like a second guessing of herself and needing validation from Sharon. There's this Later codependent the like relationship there within the work that kind of surprises me. But yeah, like she doesn't realize how much of an ex- like she relies on yeah. on Sharon because at one point she's like, oh, don't do it like that. Do it the right way, Sharon. Do it, and Sharon oh, does it perfectly, yeah. and she's right. like, yeah, just do it like that. Right. That's right, because she can't get she can't express what she yeah. is trying to get across so she needs Sharon. Yeah. 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 Also I think it's interesting in the script it's written Tar addresses them mostly in English but in the film Kate Blanchett I mean speaks a lot all of, of the lines are in German when she's conducting basically um which just makes me think she wanted to fucking dunk on him dog. Dunk dunk away my queen. And this scene for me as a lesbian so what is it so about much. it? Is it the silk shirt? It's the control and the power. It's the like no insecurity. She knows she's good. She knows she has the eyes on her because she deserves it. As well as you see her hands a lot. <laughs> <laughs> this woman's hands. She talks a lot with her hands, mm-hmm. especially in the beginning part of the film. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh for sure. I've, I was thinking Y'all. so many things that I can't say. <laughs> Y'all. Oh, God. And then after this scene, we see Tar sat between Francesca and Sharon, and Sebastian drops by. And just gives the worst note he could possibly give about like the clarinets, and he dismisses Even himself. Even I know it was a bad note. I was like, he's so wrong about the clarinets. <laughs> it's so Poor awkward. Fashion. And he leaves, and the girls are like, "Yeah, that's not right." <laughs> yeah, it says it right. But he, there's there. nothing wrong with this guy. He's just kind of a little nerd, and he literally like gets on his knees in front of Tar when he when he speaks to her. Did mm-hmm. you notice that? Yeah. Like on his knees on the carpeted steps at her feet, giving that note. What the. And this is the thing I was saying about her with in her relationships with people, how she's sick of pretending that they have any power whatsoever. Yeah. This is the moment she decides she's firing him. Yeah. She looks back and looks at him and she's like, enough. I can't <laughs> pretend that this guy is saying anything important. Like, I just can't anymore. <laughs> Y'all see this, right? <laughs> like, this turns to shit. her like lesbian uh, henchman. Is like, we got to get rid of this guy. <laughs> okay, at Tar's home study... We get a beautiful shot of like Tar with a mug that says dad. 
with like her yeah. pencils in it. And I like, didn't clock that. That's great. It's like so I painted love by Petra. That. Really? Mm-hmm. So, oh my gosh, that's great. Dad. Um, and Francesca enters disheveled with the news that Krista has committed suicide. And needs a hug. And needs a freaking hug. Ask for a hug. Mm. I know. And Tar like doles it like you were saying, like because she has to, and she realizes now. Yeah, (laughs) this is not the place. Um, Oh yeah, and there's a there's a description of their relationship early on. I don't know if I read it. Uh, When describe like when they're first alone together, Francesca and Tar in the script, it reads: There's an underlying tension between the two. The tension of people who have at times slept together but no longer. You can feel that. Oh, yeah. So much. Mm-hmm. And Francesca's not letting it go. Mm-mm. No. And I think Tar knows that she has to give her this affection right now to hold her together and maintain her her power over her. She says things that are like, she wasn't one of us. Uh, that line. Ugh. Ooh. Oh, that's so freaking, ooh, so sleazy. She also is like, we need to just forget about her or we need to move on from this like she's instantly going from like step one of grief to step seven delete the emails yeah like no space for francesca's grief no allowance of her own if she has any and then very quickly we see that like tar when francesca leaves tar goes to her computer opens it up and searches the name krista and you see like dozens upon dozens of emails sent from tar discouraging other symphonies to not hire krista oof Oh, girl, you didn't have to go this hard. Like, you could have just let her leave and live another yeah. life. I'm just, you have, we have to imagine a lot of their relationship because us as the audience aren't given too much information. But it really does seem that, like, Tar just kept twisting the knife on this person. Yeah, alienating her. And from her why? Why? Like, why? What did she do? Was she threatening her? Like, what? Why? Because Francesca didn't see it, you know? Mm-hmm. No. I mean, it's... I mean, she saw some of it maybe, but I think she's had to, she's obviously had to be, had to have been coaxed into cutting her out and mm-hmm. shunning her in that same way. But oh, it's I'm so, sure, such a mystery. And I'm sure Tar lied to her, gave oh, her some sure. like perfect story yeah. of why she's not one of us. Yeah. yeah. And, and we get a sense that Francesca is still very close to Krista or still thinks of her fondly. So she's like in this really precarious situation. And that night, Tar wakes from sleep to the sound of a metronome at 120 beats per minute. <gasps> 120 and 60 come up so much in the script as in beats per minute. And so 120 is the bad one. Remember, 60 is the good one. So the metronome's going at 120 and on the metronome, when she finds it is that Kene geometric pattern. And so she's like... Fully, like, am I losing my mind a little bit? Telltale heart sort of situation after, you know, understanding that Krista has killed herself. And then she stops by Sebastian's office to fire him because that note about the clarinet was just fucking way over <laughs> the, the line. The last fucking straw. <laughs> and you see her grab as he's turning away. You see her grab his pen off the desk and put it in her pocket. Wait, really? Yeah. Because she's constantly stopping other people from keeping time. Did you did you notice that? No. Because the guy um, is like moving his leg oh, and she yeah. stops it. And he's Damn. clicking his pen and she at one point just puts her hand over his hand in the auditions to stop him. And so she walks in, anticipates he's going to do that and then just takes the pen off his desk and puts it in her this pocket. This is why the film took 16 years to make. Because <laughs> <laughs> they had to think about every little detail. Everything is perfect. Holy shit. Sam, you better start writing your JSTOR credential <laughs> essay right now. Oh, I'm, I'm going to be such a little goblin on JSTOR after this. You have no idea. 
Uh, that scene, though, is so great. So good. It's so great. Because he almost tries to call her out on something, mm-hmm. but then he totally, he like backtracks right away. Like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I didn't mean that, Maestro. Yeah. yeah. Grovels immediately. It's another one right? And oh, the right. lens mm-hmm. is so wide that it, it pushes them together. And like you're saying, like he begins to grovel after he like tries to, what he says is, um, I knew as soon as the girl showed up, meaning Francesca, that my days were numbered just because no one dares breathe that we know the things you do, the little favors you grant. And the- favors. Also, everyone calls her a girl. I know. It's not even just him, but it's like yeah. everyone else calls her a girl. They go, oh, is it the girl? The girl. They don't call Sharon a girl. I no. think they call the women that they know that Tara abuses right, right, right. the girls. girls. Oh. To make them seem more like the, what's oh. dispensable, you yeah. know, which is frightening. And at this moment when Sebastian pops off, Tara just fucking, you see it. Like she just, ooh, she swivels over it and she goes, she calls him a, mon- a misogamist. And he goes, a misogynist? I'm not a misogynist. And she goes, a misogamist. And then she delivers this line that I'm still, me and Lizzie were having a discussion about what this could mean. But she says, you have a hatred of marriage. And he goes, what are you talking about? And she goes, Andrus is still very much married and you occupy an apartment on the same floor, don't you? And you were like insinuating maybe he's having an affair with Andrus and is kind of using the same cards that she plays, like these sexual favors for a better position mm-hmm. not clear to me though yeah because we don't is andrus the guy she had lunch with earlier or is that a different person yeah andrus i haven't spoken about him yet but he is her predecessor he was the, the super lead old conductor, guy the lead conductor and he brought in sebastian when they first started at that symphony orchestra so she's keeping sebastian around as a favor to andrus and so when she says, like, you occupy an apartment on the same floor, don't you? What else could it mean? I, that was what I interpreted. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know what else what else it could be. Oh, because Andrus himself at one point kind of says, like, she's asking, like, what happens, Andrus, if, like, some accusations come up against you, hypothetically? And he's like, what? Have you heard something about me? Because <laughs> it's been too long. They can't say anything. And I'm like, oh, shit. Are they all just, like, exploiting the people below them for whatever they need? Yeah, he makes a reference to the his metaphorical closet. He said, for years I made sure all the hangers in my closet were facing the same direction. We're sh- facing the same direction. We're all straight. And I was like, am I just like really reaching or is that like a, oh, I made sure all my gay lovers were hidden. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm like, I don't know. I'm like always ready to see the job. gay thing. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> I, that's the only way that I could interpret that line that would make any sense. But constantly we're given these little throwaway lines that imply so much more story yeah. that exists and we're only given up just a sliver of it, which is which is exciting like to come across. Yeah. I always complain, like, don't treat the audience like they're stupid. Well, this treats you oh. like as if you <laughs> fucking have read every book, seen every play, know every composer. Stupid. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm like, I'm swine. <laughs> You're like, every single thing is a reference. I'm just trying to understand who's gay. Y'all, I mean, this is super... Uh, I've already gone down that path. I was not going to admit this, but I didn't even know if Mahler was real or he was concocted for this film <laughs> i was that's when not I, anything to be when i saw the trailer i was like oh it's a biopic about <laughs> oh totally yeah yeah i the amount of research and i was like oh that's a real person oh that really happened and then i was like oh this this is all real everything that they're referencing did happen Everything's you know it's real everything's real yeah you could have told me Mahler was made up i'd be like mm, for sure yo 
You're like, name, it's like uh, Billy on the street, like, name, name a, woman. a woman. It's like, name a composer. I'd be like, <laughs> literally, uh, can uh, anyone uh, in this room yeah. name a composer other than the ones we've said today? Oh, God, no. <laughs> Absolutely. No. I thought there was only like maybe seven or eight in history. I thought there was just one at a time. And then when that one died, another one came. Like the Avatar? The last oh, airbender. like the Airbender Avatar? I was like, like the blue people? Yeah. No, just okay. like the Avatar. There can only be one. Oh, God. This is so much fun. Um, <laughs> uh, Tar, later in short, realizes that Francesca hasn't deleted the email she's been instructed to. And then kind of dangles the position Francesca wants in front of her in a very cruel way. Her face. Her uh, face is so good. The, like, drop that she gives. <sighs> Ooh. Love her. Love, love her. Noemi. Love, love, love. Love. Oh, geez. She's so good. And then we see Tar at lunch with Olga, which is like a ceremonial welcoming lunch when you, like, get onto the symphony orchestra. And... This is one of those scenes. The cucumber salad scene. The cucumber oh, salad scene. Amazing. Uh, Amazing. Is this one of the scenes you love? Yes. I <laughs> loved it. When she doesn't order the cucumber salad, what a boss move. I mean, I just... I, who are you? I fell in love with her. I know. Like, how can you not? Yeah, just like an unbridled, don't give a fuck, dude. Uh, Would you, you like a bite? <laughs> she like offers her a bite on her I own fork. Know. I'm like, she doesn't give a fuck about That's Lydia. something that she already said was worthless. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing good is the cucumber salad. I, uh, have you guys heard that like audio clip that's like, what's good here? A strawberry soda. The waiter comes up like, what would you like? And she goes, an orange soda. And her friend's like, what the fuck? <laughs> that is Olga in a nutshell. That is <laughs> Olga. Yes, she's, um, she, she's the, the character of Olga is played by Sophie Carr, who is not an actor. Really? No acting but experience. A, but an accomplished cellist. Yes, yeah. a professional cellist. Uh, I was wondering if she was just faking it real good. <laughs> no. And Gorgeous. she's not Russian too, right? Well, I just read in the interview, she talked about um, working with a voice coach to make sure she got the dialect right. And I was oh, like, well, what nice. dialect? If you're Russian, you don't you got it? Like, yeah. what's what the dialect? <laughs> right. I don't understand. <laughs> no, that's incredible because it, it felt, it sounded really real. And um, Olga goes on to tell Tar that she was inspired to play cello based off like a YouTube video, which Tar yeah. cannot relate yeah. to. And I think it's funny because this <laughs> <What> actress, <laughs> this actress says that she learned how to act from a YouTube video. Oh, love it. Specifically Michael Caine's acting workshop. Have you guys ever seen Michael Caine's acting workshop? I've seen like some clips from it on YouTube. It's absolutely iconic. It's done in the 80s when Michael Caine is like actually a young man. It's so clear that like everyone there is doing coke. <laughs> and... I implore you guys to watch the workshop because it's so, it's entertaining and it's, you learn a lot of stuff because it's not like, he does like little bits about like theory and like maybe a little bit about method. And then he straight up just at one point's like, and if you have blonde eyelashes, you need to wear mascara. And then he was like, and he has like little tips of like random. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's incredible if, if you're into like old timey video clips. Old timey. Is that Old mean timey. to say? <laughs> Is that an insult? Wait, when was this again? In the 80s. Okay. <laughs> sure. Okay. We're take Don't be so quick to be offended. Yeah. Um, and then Michael Caine went on to do the Muppet Christmas Carol and put his whole Muppet pussy into that word. As he should. As he should. He's Michael Caine. He stands on business. <sighs> uh, it's so. This is one of those. 
<laughs> yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> I I'm so I'm so happy that this scene made you laugh out loud. Uh, she's okay. like, I will have the veal because Tar doesn't know what to make of this woman at <laughs> all. No, no, no. This woman doesn't give her the time of day, doesn't even look up from her Instagram, doesn't give a shit. No. And you can see Tar laying out every bait to impress her, and she can't. She cannot impress this this young woman. Her birthday? No. International, International Women's, Women's Day. Day. <laughs> <laughs> so good. I want I want to do this scene. I'm dying to do it. Oh, we should we should definitely yeah. table <laughs> read. <laughs> you want to be Olga? I, I did not. I could never. I'll be I the waiter never. that's like, hey, veal, not the cucumber salad. I'll be the veal. Uh, it's so in the script, it says, Tar feeling outclassed by a long dead woman and out-educated by the one seated across from her. Because Olga is telling her about like this old feminist. And this is another one of those situations where she tries to pivot to an area yeah. where she's comfortable and she can't with this woman. Yeah, they have like no common ground. Also, this woman, like... You know, we learned through Tar, like going back home later, that like Tar has feasibly been working her entire life since childhood to be a musician. And Olga just like offhandedly is like, oh, I learned to play cello when I was 13 because I wanted to. You're doing and she's good, like, Russian. What? That's good. I got a dialect coach for this episode. <laughs> um, but you know what I mean? Like she just like was like, oh, I decided to be a world class musician and now I am one. Yeah. It's and Tar's almost- like... It's like what she wants to seem like. Exactly. She's like how she's trying to seem so spontaneous and natural. And this person's like, well, I just learned how to play the cello. And she knows that it's true. She knows it's not an act. She's like, fuck. Yeah, she eats it up when she's watching that YouTube video that oh, she texts yeah. her later. <laughs> I, I text you. I text you the link. <laughs> they make video. I text you. <laughs> <laughs> and she's watching this video. And I think it's funny that they didn't cast another cellist to play the same actress at 13 because it kind of looks oh, ridiculous. They're just does, like, um, ballet flats? That'll do. That'll <laughs> age her. the only <laughs> critique you can give to this movie. Honestly, it's the only unbelievable part. Um, but one thing I didn't catch on the first watch that was way more apparent to me this watch, especially with the Olga character, is like Tar's fear of aging mm-hmm. and her fear of death and her fear of not looking and being perfect. I mean, she works out incessantly, mm-hmm. so she's trying to keep mm-hmm. like physically fit. But um, you talked about the two-tone beep-boop being like kind of a trigger for the idea that like maybe Chris's ghost is nearby and we learn later that we hear that tone in her apartment a lot and we realize it's this old woman's like Mm -hmm. I guess some sort of medical device and we see like this poor old woman who's like really not doing good and like kind of horrifies her and she like scrubs the woman off of herself whenever she picks her up out of the chair but like I think her hyperfixation with these younger women over and over is like a way of delaying the inevitable of her yeah. getting older and getting crusty and aging, decaying, mm-hmm. you know, and becoming irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, there's a line in the script when she's having lunch with Andrus and it says like she's patiently waiting for him to be done with his like stories. And it, in a line yeah. she says, I hope and she hopes to never become this sort of creature. Exactly. So like where your personality is just memories. Yeah. She wants to be immortal. She wants to be a vampire. She would be such uh, a good vampire. Uh, maybe she is. Oh, I would love Is that a good that. read or what? Well, we did see her eating cucumber, um, but... But yeah. it could have been like... I know. Maybe she actually didn't put it in her mouth. Yeah, yeah. And like I feel like vampires it. would love Berlin. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's like really super dark all the time. And all she drinks is like red wine. Could be blood. 
And her Ooh. house is so dark. Although she complains about that. So I don't mm. know. Yeah, I thought it was funny. The production design of her house was like, this is a house made of concrete with like irreplaceably <laughs> expensive books and art everywhere. And I'm like, and they also have a six-year-old. I'm like, this is like the most uncomfortable place. You cannot child proof it. baby proofing like asphalt? <laughs> <laughs> and like a, there would be crayon all over that concrete walls. Oh, that would be a nightmare. Tar would not be having that. No. Later during rehearsal, we see that Tar announces that the companion piece is going to be the same piece she saw Olga performing. This is not fucking lost on Sharon. No, Sharon, right away. Mm-hmm. First second. Mm-hmm. Sharon fucking knows. And um, instead of giving it to the first chair as it would like customarily be given, she's like, you know, how about for this time we audition for it? Oh, how about we know? Gosha, the first cellist, is like, the fuck you are. What was it, like, (laughs) conveniently, like, the first cellist just won't be available for auditions, so anyone can try out or something. I think it's great that the player who plays, like, the first chair clarinet and Gosha, who plays, like, first chair cello, are real musicians and Mm. not actors. Gosha was serving. Oh, and also all the sound that you hear is recorded like, what's it? It's diegetic. Like, oh, oh, really? Nice. Yeah. So even when uh, Tar plays the piano, Kate Blanchett plays the piano, she's playing piano. What? Everything that you hear of Mahler's fifth in the rehearsal is them playing it. I think it's very expensive to get a lot of those musicians together in a room. So if you got them and if they're not all, you know, they're not actors, you get musicians with their instruments, mm-hmm. might as well record it. You know, it probably sounds pretty good. They're like, you just got an email with a, t- with a, a great series made by Michael Caine in 1983. <laughs> just watch that. You'll do great. So we're going to do great. Uh, and also, they were supposed to shoot the conducting scenes at the end of production so that Kate Blanchett was really comfortable with conducting because she, like, shadowed a bunch of conductors. But they lost the symphony orchestra. They were going to lose them so quickly that those were the first scenes that they shot. So everything, in, anything with the orchestra is, like, what they shot in, like, the first couple of weeks, and then they lost all these people. Oh, wow. God damn. Her physicality at the podium is, I mean, I can't fucking tell. Yeah, Ooh. the arms. Dude, did like, her did hair it. flying. Oh my god! Oh my god! She's a bad it's person. So iconic. You must remember, we're She's not so sexually bad. attracted to her. She's no, bad. no, no, no. I need like an electric shock, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, what is that called? Like that therapy where you see something you want, and you just get shocked. <laughs> it wouldn't be enough. Uh, and okay, so Tar meets with her publicist Britta, and it, in the script it says strides up the aisle at 120 beats per minute. Because she knows what this meeting's about. Krista Taylor's dead, and there's been some allegations. You should get your lawyer involved. Lawyer up, Tar. <laughs> lawyer up, asshole. Because when I come back, I'm not coming back for 51%. I'm coming back for everything. Anybody? Uh, the social network. Thank I you. saw a really good meme where it's Andrew Garfield and someone like drew on like a scarf and like a beanie. And it's like me to my friend, like this is my Christmas card. And he's like, you better layer up, asshole. <laughs> Instead of lawyer up. <laughs> you better up, asshole. I love that. Uh, later, Tar informs Francesca that she has chosen not to give her Sebastian's position. Oh, dude. Why, though? Like, to what benefit does that... Like, I'm sure Francesca's good at the job. I think it's because everyone assumes that she's going to give it to her because they know the relation... Like, the nature of their relationship... And now this Krista stuff is coming out. Mm. So it can't look like she's still granting these favors. However, she does take Olga to New York with her. 
That was just dumb. That was just to carry her luggage because her back was hurting. Her sciatic nerve was acting up. Also, when Francesca rolls her eyes, that is iconic. Uh, <laughs> rolls her eyes. She Too knows. <laughs> Before Tara's even finished the statement, she's rolling her eyes because she knows. <laughs> she knows everything. Oh, yeah. Oh, you don't want the bitch with all of the keys to your castle mad at you, bro. That was a bad chess move for sure. Oh, yeah. That's when the final domino fell for yeah. her. She should Seal know how much power she has over her, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, she really does. She could blackmail Francesca, her. Totally. I, maybe she, I mean, it's just perfect. She underestimates this young woman, this girl, mm-hmm. just yeah, like everyone totally, else seems totally. to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so Tar finds out that she's going to be deposed by... Krista's family who are suing her mm-hmm. and she also finds out that Francesca has tendered her immediate resignation mm-hmm. and so this is when shit really starts to unravel and she goes to Francesca's apartment and sees like clearly Francesca's left in a hurry and there's like a page of her manuscript the tar on tar spells out rat on rat doing the anagrams what's up with people in anagrams who has time for that Todd Field <laughs> <laughs> he's really good at anagrams taco cat Taco Cat. He would have loved Taco Cat. Would have loved it. Tar at one point drops Olga off at her house. Oh, yeah. And like Olga forgets a teddy bear. Why the fuck is this person carrying around a fucking teddy bear? Right. And like Tar goes in to return it to her and it's like clearly like a derelict building. It's clearly a horror movie. What's going on with that? Like where did she go? What's with the dog? (laughs) What's with the dog? And she's like, Olga? Olga? I'm like... It, or a werewolf, it was or a, some creature. It, it was, was a, a dog. Creature. Why? I don't know. Why, the, Sam? Why? And the amount of time she wanders through this clearly <laughs> derelict building, being like Olga, Olga. I'm like, I'm sorry, babes. <laughs> she does not live there. Hearing footsteps behind her at, I'm assuming, 120 beats per second. <laughs> it is. Uh-huh. Get out of there, you. She has clearly entered the the realm of the unreal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's kind of giving Blair Witch Project a little bit. Yeah. Yep. And so as she's like, finally, she gets out of this stupid building and she smacks her head on the ground. And it's that terrible pop sound. Eee, so bad. She looks great with a black eye, though. She does. I really was like hoping it, she wouldn't because I was like trying not to like her. Super sucks. I have a question. When do we go into her dream? That that weird, oh, like, yeah. tropical. Like in Ingmar Bergman's like persona, like, mur- like it's, a, it's like Krista holding her. Before that, because before that, she's like. In the There's bed? another dream. Yeah, oh, in the she's bed in a, with the, the bed fire. in the jungle. Yes, the in the jungle. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that one. That's got to be some reference. Well, it is a reference to Sam? to a Sam? film. I have it, uh, but it's it's. I don't understand what it means in this. I think we're just supposed to understand that she's like losing her mind. Yeah, that was one that was kind of lost on me because I could understand, obviously, how you're talking about there's those other sequences in the dreams where it's like her face distorting yeah. and Krista and Francesca there. I'm like, yeah. Love that. Um, dream meets reality meets subconscious. But yeah, the bed was so specific. And it, it we're meant to take that this is the area of like Peru that she studied in. Right. Mm-hmm. And now her bed's on fire. I mean, bed being on fire is like, you know, the, your bedfellow's betraying you. And yeah, true. I think it's symbolic. I don't, I don't know. I, I wish Todd Field was here to fucking explain that shit to me. Answer for his choices. <laughs> your crimes against humanity. <laughs> so then the hatchet job of of footage from Juilliard comes out, which is honestly very hilarious. Yeah. We also learned that there's a New Yorker 
excuse me, that there's a New York Post article that links Tar to Krista's suicide. And it includes interviews from other fellows that state Tar enticed and groomed multiple young women to engage in sex acts for professional favors and blocked opportunities to those who didn't comply. All too familiar. Mm -hmm. I mean, not from a queer woman, but from an industry powerhouse. Mm -hmm. Well, it starts to happen really quickly, too. Like Mm -hmm. everything unfolds like in these little snippets of... um, you know, her life falling apart, which I, which I love. She just walks into the boardroom and people turn around and then we move on. And then, yeah. Yeah. I really, it's really smartly done how quickly they zoom through all of what's happening in her life and how it's just completely disintegrating. That's such a good point because we mentioned the oneers, the 10 minute one shots, you know, before, and now we're seeing 30 second clips of this stuff happening in succession when she's no longer in control. And it happens very quick. Like she gets booted from the fellowship and she's all in one line says like don't worry about buying my plane tickets and you'll have to find someone to teach you to crawl, crawl to the podium, to the podium. <laughs> eat my shorts dude like she has these in the chamber yeah like she doesn't have to think about these insults because she's hated oh, yeah. everyone for oh, yeah. so long <laughs> and she's at her book event and we see olga in the back clearly flirting with some dude yeah She's losing everything that she thinks that she is. Also, (laughs) what she's reading, I found, like, totally uninteresting. So boring. It was so boring. I mean, I was expecting Tar on Tar to, like, be thrilling, kind (laughs) of like some of what we've heard throughout. And then maybe it's intentional that you're not even, like, thinking about what she's saying or focusing on her words at all. She doesn't seem to be feeling them. She's obviously, Mm -hmm. like, focused on something else. But that was such, like, a lackluster reading. (laughs) You're so right because people read autobiographies to understand the personal experience people were going through when they did like these major life events. But because she can't appear as to be anyone who struggled with anything. Mm, Yeah. So true. Her book is probably just so fucking boring. It's just probably like a long biography like we heard in the first interview. Probably just her waxing poetic on and on and isn't the cutaway from that scene like if she uses allegory, I swear (laughs) to God, she's like, like a bird in song. (laughs) And then cuts. Another moment where I just like laughed out loud. (laughs) She uses fucking allegory. (laughs) I love that. Uh, So when she gets back to Berlin, Sharon's had enough. She references Olga, said, did you have fun with her? Which is funny. She could not even sort of make Olga happen. No, it's like, bruh, she wished she could have. She (laughs) has zero riz in the Olga department. So it's funny she gets caught for something she didn't even do, like the one time she couldn't pull it off. It's just so good. And this is where Sharon is like, she fucking calls it. She's like... There's many things I accept about you, and in the end, I'm sure I can get over something like this, but that's not what we're talking about. Is it the accusations from the parents of the girl who committed suicide? And Tara's, like, trying to shoo her away, like, well, what could you have done? You know, like, you have no power, essentially. And Sharon says, I deserve to know those are the rules. Yeah. And I find it interesting throughout this scene, we go from, I mean, this is like classic cinematography 101, but we go from Tar being like kind of shot from above looking down at Sharon to the exact opposite. Tar sits down on the couch and Sharon's like looming over her, giving her no personal space, like demanding that she give her the answers, the attention. I'm just like, yeah, Sharon, step into your power. Enough is enough. Get her. And she lays this like whopping line. She says, the only relationship you've ever had that wasn't transactional. And she's sleeping in the room next door. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Oh. Okay, so Tara's going full fucking ape shit, playing accordions at ridiculous uh, hours. Apartment for sale. <laughs> you put I was your like, sister in what? jail. You put your sister in jail. Uh, and she only goes this crazy because the real estate agents are trying to constrict her power over time. They're like, yeah. what time do you stop? And yes. she goes, they're, they're like, we heard you playing. She goes, oh, well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, we need to schedule around that racket. <laughs> and she just laughs and shuts the door. <laughs> so good. She's such an icon. Uh, so fucking Come good. Come on, Corella DeVille wanted to kill puppies and she's also an icon, okay? An you icon. can be both an icon and a monster. You can't cast Kate Blanchett, fucking Meryl Streep, or Glenn Close as someone you want me not to like. Sorry. It's not going to work. It's not? I checked and it's not working. Uh, so we get to the night of Mahler's fifth performance. I'm going to show you that scene now. Okay, Herr Schaum, bitte. Give me some eyes. Mother is mad. <sighs> uh, I'm sure that scene doesn't need a description if you're familiar with the film, but Lizzie, can you give us one? So they shoot it in such a way that when the orchestra starts their performance, you see Lydia Tarr in the wings and you think perhaps, oh, she's going to, you know, get her final symphony moment. But as she... As she enters the stage, she promptly breaks into a sprint and bodies the conductor at the head of the symphony, who is the guy she was having lunch with earlier. And she is just in a rage. She's just fully lost it, like physically attacking this man. She's beating the shit out of him. She's so upset. And everyone in the crowd, everyone in the symphony is shocked, refuses to play. You you also mentioned like, oh, it'd be so funny if this is one of the first days of shooting, which it likely had to be right. with the orchestra, as we talked about earlier, which I didn't even consider. And as she's walking onto the stage, it's it's a wonder again when we see her enter the wings and it doesn't cut until she tackles yeah. Elliot. So it's like she, we believe, we trust that she has the yeah. power until she gets to him. And then we realize she fucking doesn't. Oh. And it's this guy, this guy that she talked mad shit about and doesn't think is good enough, who's leading her, using her score, too, because we see a move that she planned earlier by having one of the trumpets start the piece from the wings so it sounds very far away. So he is performing her version of the score. And she's lost her version of it, Her the score that she's written the notations right. in, and she's like feverishly looking for it. And at the beginning of the film, he says like, oh, I bribed Francesca to see your <gasps> score. And oh. she said no. And, <gasps> and Tara said, good girl. And then she loses her score towards the end of this film, yeah. and he's using it. Yeah. Damn, Francesca. Francesca fucking... Is a real she paid one. for the postage and said, you can have it. Mm-hmm. Do with it what free. you will. <laughs> Do with it what you will. Ah, oh, such a good scene. It's so hard to watch this. Yes. I mean, without your mouth just, you know, wide open. It's wild. You just can't imagine that she will lose control no. in this moment. No. On this stage. Mm-hmm. That's when we know she, she has completely lost it. Yeah. Because... Everything is a performance to her, and this is the biggest performance, uh, and she does yeah, this. Yeah, She's yeah. gone. And 
we see her sometime or like later at her Staten Island apartment, you know, completely as she's come down to earth. And um, we see her enter a closet that has like 53 tapes, one for every episode of Leonard Bernstein's Young People concert, What Does Music Mean? And she puts it in and she watches it and she cries. And we are to understand that she wasn't a mentee of Leonard Bernstein. She would have been like eight or 10 around the time that he would have mentored her. And and Todd Field has said since, like, we understand, like, it's written, but it's a lie. She's lying about being mentored by Leonard Bernstein, but she believes in her heart that she was because he was such an influence on her through these, like, videotapes, which is, like, so sweet and so heartbreaking. I know. It's like we see her at her lowest, and then we come to this moment in the house where it, it paints her so with such humanity for being such a monstrous person, it's they never let us paint her just as like bad, cancel, no good. It's like we see her, this dream from a child, like you see her like awards and certificates and she's been obsessed with music since she was a kid and you're seeing that humanity side of her. It's We get that too with her relationship with Petra too. Mm, you yeah. know, they, they do, uh, they really do balance the the monstrous with this like, I don't know, sweet and more, I don't know, vulnerable side. Yeah, Yeah, without those moments, it would just seem like, what are we doing? Sure. It's it's like just painful to watch someone be evil and then flounder and then Mm -hmm. fall off, you know. And we also see later that she goes to the Philippines and she's giving this, she has a new score that she's working on and she's giving it all the pomp and circumstance that she normally would for any other score, but we just see that the way that she's handled is totally different. She's not in a private jet. No. She doesn't have a a Maybach with a driver driving her everywhere. She's not staying at the Ritz with this like massive suite. And then there is a scene where she attempts to get a massage and then understands quickly what the establishment, like the nature of the establishment that she's in. She's instructed to go to the fishbowl where she sees young women in a semicircle, not unlike an mm-hmm. orchestra symphony. Oh, wow, yeah. And she's, they all wear like numbered uniforms and she's shocked. She says fishbowl and she's holding her hand up like a conductor and inadvertently gestures to number five, Mahler's five, <gasps> the woman who sat in Olga's position. <gasps> and as the woman is like, yeah. okay, number five, Tar walk, like runs out of, of the building and vomits onto the street. Oh. God, you pulling it. Thank you. Can I just say my biggest pet peeve in film is fake vomit. Oh, <laughs> like throwing really? up. It never looks right. It because always it has looks to... like they've been holding it in their mouth and yeah. just spit it out. Always. Yeah. Like so rarely is it real. And I'm just like, uh. is, it, is it like the projectile quality that you're looking for? Is it the like timing of the... <laughs> The retching and the, like the yeah. open mouth retching and then the substance, like, because what you're saying is true. Like you, they have to kind of open their mouth and let yeah. it fall out. And then there's no like part two. It's just like a, and I was like, that's just <laughs> like, not how oh, vomit works. Done. That's just not it. Oh, so you've never and vomited? Kate, even you. Like, I thought you could get this right. Come on, Kate. Just eat, <laughs> some, <laughs> eat some suspicious chicken. All right. Just, I just hate that that's my your... pet peeve, but I just have to be real with myself. It's a powerful moment, though, that whole scene. It really is. It's it's such a concentrated version of the power dynamic that she has yeah. had. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. seeing it in this way of like, yeah. see how cheap it actually is yeah. 
disgusts her. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I know a lot of people take issue with that scene and, and you know, maybe take issue with the ending of the film because Tar is in the Philippines. And we can talk on that in a second here because at the end of the film, we see what piece she's actually working on. She She walks onto the stage and is handed headphones, which will cue her. So she's no longer even in charge of the time. She is being cued like a robot, which is something she does not like. And as she's beginning the score, the screens come down and a movie monster hut cues on the screen. And we shoot to the audience and they're all in like uh, cosplay RPG clothes. And you had to, to mop me up off the floor <laughs> of the theater when I first saw this. I said, ah! so good. The just desserts that she's taking this so seriously. And it's like a Comic-Con event. And Night Shyamalan could never. Could never. Could never. <laughs> yeah, I just love, I just love the karma circle closing here. Like, yeah, this is what she's relegated to. And not to talk shit about cosplay. I'm a total nerd. I get it. But you know what I mean? Comparatively. Well, I've seen, like I mentioned before, people do take offense with the ending. And I saw during the Independent Film Spirit Awards, Hassan Minaj, you know, was quipping about all the films. And he was like, Tar, the movie where white people's biggest fear is having to work with Asian people. Yeah. And I think that's a very naive way to see the scene because we as audience members know that there is a worse fate for Tar. She could be criminally indicted for what she's done to Krista Taylor and her family can sue the living shit out of her and she would be guilty. She could be in bad health. She could be completely poor. You know, we're, we know that this isn't the worst ending for someone, but we know that she thinks it is. Exactly. This is something that she would hate. That's why, like you're saying, the just desserts yeah. are there because we don't think there's anything wrong with this, but she does. Yeah, she has no interpretation of this thing. It is set to a time code. This is the best she'll ever be able to do ever again mm-hmm. is make $300 a day, probably orchestrating like a nerdy fantasy film. And this is the only moment in the film where she conducts music that's not written by a white man. Oh. And she spent yeah. the whole True. like first two hours of the film in like, Euro, centro, white, high, upper class. So this is, it's not that Todd Field is saying the Philippines are bad. Can you believe anyone would have to work in the Philippines? It's like, she believes that they're bad. Yeah. So when people say that, I'm like, oh, did you see the film? Yeah, I'm like valid, but context and consideration is important. Mm-hmm. <sighs> This has been a marathon, you guys. Are you? Are you? you give me some eyes. You guys with me? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, this is great. Uh, this is. Are there credits after this? Like, do we then redo credits or no? I can't remember. I think we do. I think oh, really? there is credits. Double credits. <laughs> Double credits. <laughs> they go the right way, or not the right way. Not that there's a right way. Yeah, they do. The yeah, traditional the traditional uh, sense. Uh, with a budget of twenty-five million, it made only twenty-nine million at the box office. So. A success technically, but not a huge blockbuster. Uh, But it was a very critical success. It received six nominations at the Academy Awards. Best Picture, Best Director, Best Original Screenplay, Best Actress, Best Cinematography, Best Editing, and lost every single one. Yeah, this was... (laughs) It was a tough year. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. All but one Best Cinematography went to All Quiet on the Western Front. Oh, right. Mm. That film was the thing. And... 
you just don't want to be going up against everything everywhere all at once. You just yeah. will not win. I feel my heart kind of goes out to Todd Field because this is the a perfect film. Yeah. This is just a masterclass in everything, and it just did not stand a chance. And you know, I think it's interesting. I usually don't like films that are super modern and use technology. I said this on the Bodies, Bodies, Bodies episode. Like, I don't want to see phone screens. But in this film, the way that it lets itself be timestamped so completely to this specific year, I think is a really interesting and iconic testament. Like, I could feel the shift of this movie over time, like something I'd be interested to go back and watch in 10 years. You know, like, where have we developed and where have... We, what do we think about these things looking back? And the film also references COVID, which I think is just yeah. fascinating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. And Kavanaugh being a player. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. As I mentioned before, Field had said that Tar was never the mentee of, of Bernstein. And he said that in an interview with The New Yorker. And. <sighs> the the children of Leonard Bernstein wrote a letter to the New Yorker in response, clarifying that Tar was in fact a mentee of Bernstein. They said, as representative of Bernstein's estate and the spirit and in the spirit of ongoing hubbub over the film, we can assure Field that his heroine was a teenage prodigy whose talents were so formidable that she was granted special permission to be one of Bernstein's conducting students at Tanglewood in the summer of 1990 during the final year of Bernstein's life. His impact on her artistry is indelible down to her churning washing machine movements and intriguing adaption of Bernstein's legendary podium style. They said fan fiction, but for real life. (laughs) (laughs) We will all live it together. (laughs) They're just playing right along. (laughs) I know. Washing machine motion. Oh, gosh. Uh, I just love that so much because every reference in this film is things that actually happen yeah. that the first yeah. scenes are like, nah, she was actually like for yeah. sure. Meant sure, to. yeah, this too. Yeah, <laughs> this is a biopic. <laughs> At the top of the episode, I mentioned that there was a lot of points in Tar's biography that mirror that of female conductor Martin, Martin Alstrop. And in a 2023 interview with London Times, she said, So many superficial aspects of Tar seem to align with my own personal life. But once I saw it, I was no longer concerned. I was offended. I was offended as a woman. I was offended as a conductor. I was offended as a lesbian. To have an opportunity to portray a woman in that role and to make her an abuser for me was heartbreaking. I think all women and all feminists should be bothered by that kind of depiction. There are so many men, actual documented men, this film could have been based on, but instead it puts a woman in that role. It gives her all the attributes of those men. Feels anti-woman to assume that women will either behave identically to men or become hysterical, crazy, insane is to perpetuate something we've already seen in films so many times before. Love an opinion. Yeah. I love an opinion. I hear that. We love an opinion. And Todd Field responded because this was read to him over like an NPR interview. That statement was read. And Todd. Todd, better be ready. (laughs) Better be more ready than Max. (laughs) Todd Field, you better fucking come ready. He responded, it's an incredible statement and I appreciate it. I think that it's a really important conversation to have. It's part of why we made this film. And people... Some people were bound to be offended. Marin Alstrop, mm-hmm. she's a ta- she's a storied trailblazer. Uh, any relationship to her is superficial. I wasn't interested in making a public service announcement about the evils of bad conductors or people abusing power in the classical musical sphere. This is about a character, and it's about the corrupting force of nature. Unfortunately, I firmly believe that whoever holds the power, it's going to corrupt them. We're part animals. So we've spoken to many female conductors at the top of their game that love the film, and they love the film because of the conversation that it inspires. 
I don't know if he's entirely addressing her point, mm-hmm. but I still, I mean, to be on the fly on an NPR interview, at least he responded. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah, he true. was like respectful and yeah. wasn't like diminishing her perspective and then was like, well, it is superficial, any of the similarities. It, it, I didn't base it off of her, you know, but I get his point. Yeah, and I think, I don't know, there's something to it, you know, and it's something that I struggle with. Like I said earlier, like anytime I see like a representation of a queer person, it just makes me question, like, what are you trying to say about queer people? Not queer person. Yeah. Like, why are you making this person queer? But in this case, there's something so, I don't know, alive about the character of Tar. Like, Mm -hmm. she is so fully formed and so much more than just, like, her queerness, so much more than, oh, uh, you know, a gender. She's just, like such a deep rich character who came from somewhere like obviously real that had to be excised from him in some way you know so i yeah. i don't know i in this case i don't i don't know i i appreciate her perspective yeah but it's a it's an, it's interesting i i don't know what to yeah. make of it really also props for this film for centering gay parents which you never see like never. i just there's not enough gay parents on yeah. on film so i really appreciated that your point just like made me re- like queer representation in initially was so negative. We were coded as villains and predators. Yeah. And I think the pendulum has swung in recent representation depictions. We are often gay people are often the good guy and usually yeah. are yeah. so trustworthy. Flawless. Yeah. And, you know, and, and it can feel tokenizing to always be good and flat and um, not complex. So I feel like, when can we start being bad again? Like no. not because we're <laughs> gay, year. we're just bad and we happen to be gay. Like Bottoms yeah. was such an bottoms, enjoyable experience because yeah. I was like, they're just little dirtbags who happen to be gay, yeah. but they're not dirtbags because they're gay. And, and Tar is an ab- abuser because she's a lesbian. She's yeah. just an abuser who happens to be a woman who happens to be a lesbian. But as yeah. Lizzie would say, she's a composer before anything else. So I'm, I hear you, girl. I hear you. I get it. I mean, it seems like very personal to her, like very specifically personal to her. So I think that's a valid um, response to have. And Lizzie, one more thing before we move on to scores. You're going to hate this. Oh, good. Is it another Blair Witch thing? No. So Field directed a short film called The Fundraiser, which is the same universe, the Tarverse, <laughs> with the same cast. Wait, what? Same characters. I didn't know about this. It's a 10-minute short film, and it's described Sharon and many others decide to surprise the maestro with a party, covering it up as a fundraiser. Before or after? Where can I see this? Is this a joke? It, scre- <laughs> it screened only once in Germany. And never screened again. Todd Field introduced it and was like, this will never be screened again. Todd! Uh, Tease. What a bitch. So I thought it was like a whole new idea and like, you know, um, but I found out that it was like. So like extra footage? Yeah, it was like extra footage and they didn't even, it's not even in the script. Um, What's it called again? Fun? The fundraiser. And if you find it, Clint. I'm on it. I'm on it. Let's go. You've got to have someone in your Rolodex. Bradley will have it. I'm just going to text Bradley. 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 (laughs) Francesca, can you get me a matcha and the fundraiser screener? (laughs) Wow. Short film. None of us get it. None of us get it. People on Reddit are fucking livid about this. I believe they should be. Do we really know it exists? It does like exist. this is a real thing. Yes, it okay. really exists. It was exclusive to Berlinale or Berlinale, hmm. I guess a film fest. Yeah. 
Yeah, it was only screened once. Interesting. On to the scores. <laughs> Are we there? Yeah. We're there. It's that time. We're landing really? the plane. Oh my gosh. I'm not ready. We're landing it in the where did Sully land it? Uh, Atlantic. The water. The water. Hudson? The water. The Hudson. The Hudson. That seems right. Yeah, that seems right. Lizzie, will you please explain the scores? Sure. Why not? Um, the subtextual scores work like this. We each get to rate the film on a scale of 1 to 10 on how gay it is and how good it is. We then average those scores to get a single subtextual score. Score. Can I say score one more time? Score. All right. <laughs> so we will start with Lizzie. Lizzie, how good is this movie? 10. 9. 10. Nine and a half, nine and a half, nine and a half. Clint, how good is oh, this movie? Oh, 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 oh. Um, I get to count? Yeah. My you, score counts? Of yeah, course it counts. counts. Okay. Um, I don't know. I'm where you're at. Don't let me sway you. You're not. You're not. I'll go nine and a half. I'm going to go nine and a half. Nine and a half. I'm, I'm, ten, I'm nine and a half. I think it's a fucking 10. It, I think it was my favorite film of 2022. I think Mine too. Everything Everywhere All at Once was deserves all the accolades and is in, incredible as everyone says it is and fantastic and I love it very much. But like, I could not stop thinking about Tar. Yeah. Yeah. It's just Everything had film. my heart, but this had everything else. <laughs> <laughs> in my intestines. Uh, Lizzie, how gay is the film? Super damn gay. That's a 10. Clint, how gay is the film? Um, I don't Could know. I, well, I mean, I feel like you're always saying there has to be gay sex in it. And yeah. there is the dream. <laughs> yeah. But like, do we see it? We even see like maybe one kiss, which. Um, but it's your own criteria. Okay, do my own feel, criteria. Yeah, do well, not feel first off, me. I don't think any of the key individuals involved are gay. So for me, the mm. production's not very gay. Mm. Um, so I'm going to dock it a point or two. And there's no gay sex in it. So eight. Eight. I am changing my criteria because my from only here on out, or for no, this film, just for this film, it warrants it. Because, like Clint mentioned, as long my criteria is there is a ten if there is gay sex. There's no gay sex, but Tar was so gay <sighs> that I'm giving this a ten. She is a U-Haul lesbian. She is a U-Haul lesbian. Okay, the audacity of Kate Blanchett to look so gay all of the time from behind. From above, from below, no matter the outfits, the haircut. Don't let me. You're don't, turning don't, don't, me. Also, no, are you no, mad no. Your criteria makes sense. I'm so mad. <laughs> I mean, I really, if you wanted to have a higher score, I will totally change. I love how you think eight is a low score. The Haunting, which has an actual gay know, person in it, you just has a two. Twin tens. Well, I gave it a ten. Lizzie gave it a nine or something. What did you give for you? I gave it a ten. Ten oh, and a nine and a half. But that doesn't mean you're wrong. It's your own score. Somebody okay. feels exactly the way you did and gave it True. exactly You're the same score. You're way too generous with your guests. It's not. And also, like, they don't win anything if they get. <laughs> <laughs> we talk about it now. You're taking food out of Tar's mouth right now. <laughs> so Tar gets a 9.5. Damn! Where does this rank, would you say? Top 10? Oh, top, easily top 10. Sam, is it in the top 10? Top 5, probably. It's tied with a it's bunch of others. It's top five. It's tied with Brokeback Mountain being John Malkovich and Jennifer's body. And that feels like a great place for two. It does. Yeah. It does. And then Carol is Carol true 10. ten. And everything true everywhere ten. all at once are, right. are true tens. Right. Yeah. Um, oh, everything beat Tar. <laughs> Even in September. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. <laughs> I know. You know, scores are imperfect. They are. Are they? They are. 
I think I think they're very I think they're good. I think they're accurate. We did it. Yeah. That's all that counts. We did the damn thing. All right, you guys. Who's exhausted? I'm exhilarated. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> but wrong out. Yeah. Exalted. Uh this has been so much fun. Thank you guys for letting me wax poetic. Thank you in advance, everyone in this room, from whom later I will be texting with all the other things that I've forgotten to say. <laughs> Clint, thank you for Ugh. coming on. I can't believe I just you were hate here that it's for over. This. I just hate that it's over. You have to come back. Please come back. Oh, you should uh. definitely come back for the Patricia Highsmith. Oh, oh my God. Oh, my God. You're booked. Uh, please. Please just give me a date. <laughs> thank you so much for being yes. here today and I can't wait for this episode to come out so I can listen to it again Monday <laughs> you won't have to wait long <laughs> okay Lizzie um, name a come, woman <laughs> name a woman <laughs> <laughs> we get to leave when Lizzie names the conductor uh, Bradley Cooper <laughs> thanks for listening to this episode we hope you enjoyed it if you'd like to keep this content ad free please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash subtextual pod See you next week.